Here we go. Hello, and welcome to the third episode of the podcast. My guest today is a special one for me, probably the guy that I have known longer than anyone else who will be on this podcast. And that means it's going to really stretch the limits of the concept of the title. My guest is Bill Baker. People involved in the punk and hardcore scene might know Bill Baker from a record label he did in the mid-90s called Incision Records. The main thing he put out that people would know is the Ringworm, The Promise LP. Prior to that, Bill did some zines. He did a zine called Love Act, another one called Rated X. Uh, and he also, when we lived in Bellingham, Washington, put on some fantastic shows in his garage. And out there on the internet, there have been some pictures of Inside Out and Shelter and bands like that playing in a garage in Bellingham. Well, that was Bill's doing. He set that stuff up. After that, Bill sang in a band called Jayhawker, which I released on Excursion Records. And later, he sang in a band from Portland called Slow Side Down. And I also had the opportunity to release one of their 7 Inches. And then, after a bit of a break, where he did do some electronic music, which we could talk about at some point. I see that look on his face. Maybe he doesn't want to. Uh, he came back in the early 2000s with a band called Pistols at Dusk. And as for what he's doing now, well, who knows? Anything can happen. But uh, we're going to talk to my oldest friend, Bill Baker. Bill, welcome. Hey, it's good to be here. Yeah, sure it is. No, no, I'm stoked on this, man. <laughs> I didn't really drag him kicking and screaming, but I think this this we could we could get into some adversarial territory here, which will be kind of fun. It's intimidating. I've got some big shoes to fill here. I mean, you've already had Greg, you've already had Rocky here in the hot seat. Like both of those guys are their stories in and of themselves. Oh man, he's trying to curry favor with those dudes. No, no, no. I mean, they're just they're dudes that. People that know dudes know. That's true. All right, Bill. I've known you too long. It's definitely true. <laughs> Literally. It's my entire life, pretty much. <laughs> um, so what I've been doing on this podcast, and I know you've actually heard the first couple that I've done, so is we talk about, we figure out when we met, and we go back from there, figure out why we would have met, which is going to be kind of a shorter story with you and I, and then we'll go forward, and that means we can divulge tales uh, from our childhood forward, and boy, are there some. So, so, um, when did we meet? Alderwood. Yeah, it's Alderwood Elementary. But was... you and I have had this conversation before. We have different first memories of each other, and I can't figure out yours, and I don't know if you remember mine. So, tell me the first thing you remember. I was in second grade, I believe, at Alderwood, because I moved to Bellingham right after kindergarten. And that's not entirely true either. I, I actually believe I did do a little bit of kindergarten even in Bellingham. Roosevelt. Um, no, it wasn't Roosevelt for kindergarten. Um, mm. I want to say that I went to like, not Sunnyland, but the one downtown Columbia. Oh, okay. Columbia school. Um, and then, yeah, Roosevelt. Uh, and then we moved from the Roosevelt neighborhood over to the Alderwood neighborhood by the airport. And my mom became an apartment manager. Right. And so basically That's... when I came to school, I was going to school in your backyard. Yeah, pretty much. That was the the playground there uh, at Alderwood was for all intents and purposes my backyard. Right. So what? So do you have a first memory? Because I'll even I'll, I'll 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 remind you what you told me ten years ago was your first memory. Here's my first memory of you. I think I was at, we had been brought to the school for an event at night. It may well have been Cub Scouts, uh, Pinewood Derby races. 
I might have been in Cub Scout uniform, and Kelly Lambert, Jason Gear, and the Peterson brothers were probably there too. We might have even all carpooled. And it was so it was later than we were normally at school, and there was only one person out on the playground. We kind of were walking around the school, and it was you. And you came running up by the monkey bars, and you had put some Halloween scar tissue thing on the back of your hand. And then you had taken fake blood because you went and got Halloween shit and you put the fake blood on the scar and you came over, you came running up completely fine and then like fell to your knees, clutching your hand and screaming like you were dying because you wanted us to believe that you had somehow gashed your hand open. Oh yeah, that's... Do totally... you remember that event or is that just so common for you I at the time? unfortunately that was a common enough occurrence that it's... It's almost unquestionable I inflicted that on you. I believe I'm in second grade when this happens. I remember a different recollection from you that has always stood out as the popular version of how we met, which involved meeting at like recess on the playground, and one of us w- was walking around dangling a jump rope no, behind this is, us. You always claimed this was what you remember Same about me first. the banana splits theme or something like that. You claimed I was running around with a jump rope singing the banana splits theme song and various people would chain up on the jump rope behind and basically form like one big idiot train little kids are are one big idiot train right right and at one point (laughs) or another i realized well i'm gonna join this idiot train and that's kind of where it all started from my recollection i feel like what you recollected to me years later that's okay but the, the first time i i mean in my adult life, the first time I heard about the Banana Splits theme song on the Hollywood Playground was you saying that's what you thought I was the one singing it and carrying the jump rope. Like, I started off this whole fiasco. That could very well be. But here's what I know about the you running up with your hand and clutching it and screaming, is that the guys I was with were annoyed. Oh, of course. They they did not like it. They were like, shut up. You know, he's, he's a liar. And they were like, I guess they are, like, Jason, I think, already knew who you were. Something like that. And I remember just thinking... He's, I mean, I didn't have these words because I was a little kid, but I was like impressed that you were selling it. Like you knew we knew it wasn't real and you were still trying hard to get us to believe that you had hurt yourself in some way. Like the fiction of the cost of this, of this makeup that you'd put on needed to be real. You needed it to be real. That's how that, that sums up two things there. That sums up me almost in a nutshell. And it also definitely sums up my relationship with all of the rest of your friends for the most part, especially in the Alderwood era. Sure. Um, I was always very much someone that had come in from the outside and didn't really belong. And I was tolerated by the better of those friends um, and was nothing more than an annoyance to the rest. Sometimes beaten savagely by others. <laughs> yes, very much so. <laughs> and uh, Laughing at the pain of your childhood. But Okay, so I'm saying it's second grade. And the beauty of, like, basically, I knew that you were someone that I thought was more interesting than anyone else that was there. I was used to these other kids, and none of them were weirdos. I think you were probably the first legitimate, like, weirdo, like, smart weirdo that I ever knew. And the next year, I come, I had come to find that I'm one of a handful of kids that's going to be put in a third and fourth grade split class. It was, like, me and, like, six other kids. So I'm going to be one of the third graders in a class of fourth graders, and you're in the class. So I got to have one year of school, in grade school, with you. 
Yes. And that is one of the most amazing years of public school that anyone ever had. But we are going to, it's not time to go forward from the meeting. It's time to go backwards from the meeting. We're going to talk about how you got to where we would have met. Go so ahead. I was born and raised in Bellingham. I went to Alderwood from, I, I went to, I never changed, never moved and never switched schools. So I was always there. I was just a constant in the place. You showed up. So where did you come from? Uh, I was born in Long Beach, California. And my mom, single mom, so she did the best she could raising me. Um, a lot of time that meant that I was raised also by my grandmother and grandfather. So we moved around an awful lot uh, because my grandfather, my biological grandfather was a defense contractor and he worked for a lot of different aerospace industries in the last years of his life. Um, so, you know, in and around Los Angeles County at all those different defense industries. Uh, and then later on, as my mom, Got more comfortable with having a kid um, and found a career that was a little more conducive to the two of us having our own place. Uh, we ended up more in like San Diego County, Imperial Beach, Claremont, Chula Vista, um, usually living with some family member or whatever. And we were living with my aunt and uncle in San Diego um, prior to moving up to Washington. I want to say it was right after kindergarten or it may have even been the beginning of kindergarten. I know I did some school in California. I remember going to a year-round school when I was younger. Um, I remember going to an elementary school in San Diego that I got kicked out of. Let's talk about that you got kicked out of because you're remembering a lot of things from a time where most people I don't think have a concept that they were even alive. I only have snippets of memory of my life before kindergarten, and I have almost no real cohesive memories prior to Star Wars. Something about Star Wars made my brain explode and I kind of remember most everything after that. But I feel like you were always way ahead of the game. I mean, when you read books when I knew you, I mean, just a couple years later, you were reading books that were far, far advanced of what a kid should be reading. You were talking about things you shouldn't know about. You were a good artist and you were talking, I mean, you just, you, a lot of kids couldn't figure you out. You were like a little man in a child's body, kind of, sometimes. So here's a weird thing. You talked about the fake scar and the blood and stuff. Yes. So I remember in Imperial Beach, uh, I went to an elementary school called Bayside Elementary, and there was a girl there named Shelly Roser. Mm -hmm. um, and she was my, from what I can recall, the first person that I can remember as like, oh, I'm crushed on this girl. Right. And, you know, I would do things like my mom bought me the seven inch of the theme from SWAT. And I like took it to school and gave it to her. And then she like broke it on the playground because that's, oh. <laughs> that's what people do. Um, but I <laughs> Wait, remember is that what people do. Sure. It's like she broke, did she break it? Like, Oh, I dropped it. It broke. Or did she go like, why'd you give terrible. me this? And then broke it with a rock in front of you just to watch what you would do. Oh, I'm sure it was the latter. Okay. Cruel. Right. Cause yeah. kids are terrible. But at the same yeah. time, she was also nice to me at times too. Oh, who doesn't want attention when you're that age? Right. Okay. Early training there is what that is. But I distinctly recall um, faking a black eye at one point, <laughs> taking like hot asphalt from the playground and rubbing it under my eye and actually doing more harm to myself than if I had just been punched by somebody. Like I got a burn and a scrape and it was it was really, really nasty and nobody believed it was a black eye, but everybody was just like, what the fuck is wrong with this kid? Okay. Um. So Because I think later you just... You just did things to people until they punched you in the face. Yeah, I did a lot of that. I think I was uh, 
pretty serious glutton for attention and you know in the soul in and it was any kind of attention exactly like there's no bad press there's also no bad attention when you're a crazy little kid now let me ask you i want to talk about one thing that you told me about after we had known each other for like 25 years and i never knew this about you you were assaulted by another kid when you were a very young kid yeah i had a do you remember this yeah i had an incident um did it do you feel that this affected you also I don't know. You know, like I, all my life, I, I've I've had opportunities where there should be a great fight story that comes out of this. But this is different than the other ones. I saw most of the other things that could have been great fight stories. This was like someone trying to kill you, wasn't it? So yeah, this was uh, Imperial Beach, and a kid your age. This was a kid across the street, and you know, the thing that kills me is that. Um, and, and maybe this is testimony to our friendship or whatever, but I don't remember really any friendships that I had before, like you and I started being friends. Like I know I had them, um, but I couldn't tell you their names. I couldn't tell you any details about those friendships or anything. The only other f- like memory of a friendship I have is the one that went really, really bad in Imperial Beach. Um, and it was a kid across the street and he had had a kind of a troubled relationship with his parents anyways. And we were on again, off again friends, um, but it was always kind of a weird adversarial friendship. And he had a one of those army entrenching shovels, and like where the where the where the blade of the shovel folds the out, the type that folds out, yeah, okay. that you would like th- throw in your backpack or whatever, right? And I thought it was the neatest thing ever that he had it, and I wanted to see it, and he was like, "No, I'm not going to let you see it," and I was like, "Oh, come on." I don't remember how it escalated, but ultimately came around to, well, I'm just going to kill you, is what the kid said to me. And I was just like, fine, then go ahead, kill me. And he took the shovel and swung it at my head and sunk it into my neck. And wow, I passed out. <laughs> so it's legitimately say, like fair to say this kid tried to cut your head off with a shovel. Yeah. And almost succeeded. And you, I mean, what kind of recovery time is And How old are you? Are you four? Are you five? Uh, this is, like I said, this is probably kindergarten. Five or six then? Yeah. So uh, that would have been five or six. How long were you laid up? Most of that summer. Like I remember losing an entire summer vacation out of it. Did you have like cast and stuff then, around your yeah, neck? Yeah, had a neck brace that I wore into the beginning of the next school year and it was miserable. Yeah. And, and I, you weren't at Alderwood. Like, no, 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 yeah. no, no. This was still, I was in Chula Vista. Okay. Um, and going to Hazel Goes Cook Elementary School. Okay, this is something I've thought about since you told me that story. There are people who post a a traumatic incident like that might have shied away from confrontation. You have never shied away from any confrontation that I've seen. Like, until we were adults. And sometimes even then, it doesn't shy, you know. You make it sound almost noble, though. Let's be honest. Okay. I was constantly writing checks with my mouth that my ass... Constantly. ...was was going overdraft on. And what was impressive was that you... I mean... They were, those checks were getting cash. You just weren't really getting. Well, they were getting cash, and they were bouncing, and I was ending up in collections. And <laughs> and I, I I so many times sat and watched you in a fight. I'm putting fight in quotes. <laughs> um, that that it almost felt like I was a I was an audience member. There was a solemn dignity in watching me bleed. <laughs> yeah, it was very. I, I don't think there was a solemn dignity because if I had been a little bit bigger, I could have stepped in and say, you know, done something about it. But I was a very small child. 
And, you know, and no one ever, I don't remember one time when someone took a swing at you, then turned around and said, oh, you're with him and took a swing at me. They always just kind of looked at me and gave me a weird nod and walked away. No, if anything, they probably sympathized. Sympathized with me? Sure. Fuck them. Every one of them. Fuck them. Like, they were all the enemy. They were all evil. No, but you know, you know, and I didn't think they were you have for someone where you're like, well, I'd fight you, but this is what you have for a friend. And really see that's. I I never looked at it that way, like and I I you know you were you were like one of my very closest friends, but there were you know when you weren't around. I mean, remember you were you were a year ahead. You'd leave, I'd be there for a year alone, and I'd be hanging out with the other kids and stuff, you know. And we didn't always have the same classes or schedules. No, no, we didn't even live in the same school district for a lot of our friendship. Right. Um. Okay. So that's I just feel that that story. I mean, most people's young memory doesn't start off with a neighbor kid trying to chop their head off. I got a neat scar. <laughs> Okay, so we end up, we meet. That's it, basically. I think that's we're there. So let's go. We're gonna go yeah, forward, really, and I want to touch on some key, awesome things uh, before we start getting to the the ways that you and I are involved in punk rock and hardcore and various different elements of that. We're in grade school. We're in Miss Emmons' class, split third, fourth grade class. Before she became Batten. Before she became Miss Batten, and so she was single that year. She got married over the summer. She came back. I had her again the next year. And you were in fifth grade. You were in Miss Glaze's class. Yes. Okay. I remember these things. I'm sure everyone listening cares. So you basically, I think, couldn't go very long in the class without causing some kind of trouble. Because I think you were bored. Always. And Miss Emmons was probably the very best teacher for you to have because she did understand you and she did like you. I had a, I lucked out. I had a couple of teachers like that kind of all through my school career that understood that beneath the all the hubris and other shit you had to put up with with me like there was something there that was worth putting the effort into trying to reach and like get to learn right and when a teacher didn't like you it was a nightmare right right no they wrote me off well terrible so the one thing the story i've told a lot of our friends but i really want to tell it here because it's a it is an it is a not embellished piece of wonderment it's february I'm in the third grade, you're in the fourth grade. That's got to make this 1978. Sound right? Sure. Maybe it's 79. Whatever. It's Valentine's Day. We've got paper and glue and glitter and all kinds of crap out to make Valentine's Day cards. And you were sitting there with a mischievous look on your face from the beginning. I knew that you had some kind of an idea. This wasn't going to go like it's free time. Make Valentine's use whatever you can get. And you know, the class is murmuring. Kids are talking to their neighbors. They're making Valentine's. Everything's fine. You cut a small rectangle of black paper, cut little mustache brushes into it, slap some glue on it, threw it on your on your upper lip and stood up and screamed, I'm Adolf Hitler. <laughs> no, I don't think I said Adolf. I'm pretty sure I didn't even know Adolf at that point. But you I'd... said the word Hitler. Oh, yeah, I'm sure I said I was and Hitler. you can tell me you didn't know who Adolf Hitler was, but when when everybody, when everyone went silent and you were standing there, Sieg Heiling with your arm up, this happened, and, yeah. and everyone is shocked, and the teacher's like, Billy, sit down, because by the way, yeah, I was Early Billy on, Baker. you were Billy Baker, and there's some people that never knew you by any other name. But that I was historically the the thing that haunts me the most is that there were girls that I liked at Alderwood that referred to me as Billy Baker Nightmare Maker. 
<laughs> it's terrible. Yeah. It's terrible. Okay. Um, so this could just end with a teacher grabbing you and dragging you out of the room. And I think Miss Emmons wanted to do that because she was, had a very stern look on her face and she came to get you around the desk. And just like the thing on your hand, you had to sell it. So you ran away from her <laughs> and you started screaming, I am defure. You do not disrespect me, Heil Hitler. And kind of like fake little kid <laughs> goosenepping around the room. Yeah. Am I telling the truth? Oh, yeah. Okay. Now, she is horrified and she kind of, she kind of like gets you like kind of cornered. And she's still being stern, and she tells you this is not respectable behavior. And you looked at her, and you yelled, You do not disrespect me! I am deaf, you're a Hitler! In her face. And this is what happened. She cracked. She snorted out a laugh that she couldn't hold. And when that happened, the class went crazy. And everybody started, all these horrified kids started laughing. And a, a kid named Bobby. Bobby Taylor. He grabbed some cotton balls and put them on his face and said that he was Uncle Sam. And then he ran from his desk and chased you around the room, at which point it was like a movie. I feel like, okay, now this is where it, it memory becomes a movie. But I believe kids are throwing glitter in the air and like flipping desks. And it all ends when she drags you kicking and screaming out like into the hallway. It did end with her dragging you into the hallway. Oh, I'm sure it did. And I'm sure it ended with me going to the office and... Not being very happy about my whole choice of comedy after that. but It was the funniest thing I have ever seen in my life. It was legendary, and you were in the fourth grade. <laughs> and I yeah. saw it happen. And I'll bet anybody in that room has to remember that. Because no one could... I mean, she was a one... You were just right... At the point when you should have been like, I'm sorry, or like, stopped, because she was right in your face, you just, you just went further with it. You went, nope, I'm dedicated to this course. This is commitment. Well, for better or for worse, I had a lot of fun being a kid. I had a pretty unrepentant childhood. I hope so. And I feel like there's a lot of stuff that you see, like in movies, like you see a Christmas story or something, and mm-hmm. then and you're like, oh, well, that's a fictionalized version of, you know, somebody reminiscing about their childhood and looking at it through rose-colored lenses or whatever. I don't feel like that's the case. I feel like that's just the way that we were. We were crazy and we were weird, and we had a lot of fun with it. And sometimes it really backfires. Oh, we, and we put ourselves into dangerous situations, or you put me into dangerous situations, and I'm, ha- and they were awesome. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> no, you're not. Don't be. I'm not. Wouldn't change it. No, there was, it was a good time. You know, I, there was a lot of moments in the Alderwood thing where I was genuinely convinced that life was like a big movie that was about us. And everybody else was a co-star or, Another supporting character in our movie. That's the thing. These other kids were, were bit players. Most of them, not all, and not all of them, but seriously, that's how, I think that's how a lot of people in hardcore and in punk rock kind of felt like this, I am my story. This is my story. I'm not a supporting player in someone else's. I like that. That was actually uh, used recently in a television show that we both watched. And I th- I've been thinking about it since. Uh, You're the worst. Oh, okay. Remember when the bit characters start wondering if they're supporting players um i like that point of view and who who's whose tale were you supporting i mean honestly like i was supporting you like i was a bit player in your story for the most part and i mean i guess that's one of those things that luckily like 
we didn't think too much about it at the time it was happening. Oh, we didn't know those words. No, no, no. <laughs> we were just we were just doing it for the sake of doing it. What I it knew needed to be done. Well, okay. So I promised Greg that I was going to talk to you about my very first spoiler incident, but you had to be called to account for it. Oh God. <laughs> so I didn't know you when I saw Star Wars. Empire. No, I was in California. Empire Strikes Back is coming out. The ads are on TV. It hasn't been released yet. You were the kind of kid that could read a book in a few hours or a day. Even back then, you voraciously read everything and remembered everything. You come to school with the paperback edition of The Empire Strikes Back. I remember that. And we're in the cafeteria, and you start telling us what's in the book. You know, that was a really dick move that publishers used to do yeah. when they would release the novelization of a movie. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes it would come out weeks before and you the movie couldn't, was released. you couldn't wait. Oh, yeah. No, no. You put me in a book section in a grocery store when I was a kid. You'd read the last page. Yeah. I mean, there was almost no purpose buying me books because I could finish them over the span of a couple of trips to the store. So, of course, that's my my first understanding of the concept of a spoiler. I'm pretty sure you you told about the Han Solo and the Carbonite. And then, of course, there were pictures on the cover that we didn't understand because we didn't see them. And so you just made up stories about what those things were. Of course. Which goes right into the next thing is that you spun tales that were fabulous and complicated and had bore no resemblance to the truth. You know, if you call them lies, (laughs) it makes people who have made a lifetime or a career out of telling lies somehow seem more innocent in what they've done because these were as lies go massive (laughs) overblown convoluted heavy beneath their own weight things other people had no time for it there were there were people that had no time for it but and i would get mad from time to time when something wasn't true but the problem was and what these other people weren't paying enough attention to understand is sometimes they were true and sometimes, like, you would tell a true story with the same conviction and embellishment that you would tell uh, something that you just cut from whole cloth. Just, it's not real. But it was, I feel, and I didn't know this stuff at the time, but I believe me, I spent a lifetime thinking about this. You were making existence better than it was. You had in your brain the tools of creation for a better way. Like what would, what we would like more than what reality was. And I was open to that. Yeah. I, you know, I spent so much time when I wasn't with my friends all the rest of the time that I was awake and alive and thinking I was in my head. And I'll tell you that as much as it pissed people off with those stories, like I, I believed most of those stories myself after a while too. You just, you tell it for so many times and you, and you say it so much that suddenly you can't remember what is the truth. And I was really, really good at believing my own lies for a really long time. They were good. Yeah. They were. Here's the thing. There was a point when you were so used to doing it and it needed to stop right. where it got annoying for a little while and it just kind of got, they just kind of died out. There's a point where it stops being precocious and starts being clinical. Sure. Um, But that's fine. Whatever. Everybody's got their thing. Um, I think, I mean, I write stories. I write fiction, you know, I don't know. Was I inspired by that? By not being satisfied with the normal? Like, I don't remember any story any other kid told me in the first, like, six years of going to school with kids, you know? 
because nothing anybody said was all that interesting, except if like someone caught a big fish or went hunting and got a deer or something like that stuff. But I, I don't really remember them. But I remember that your mom was buying you the Bespin playset that was as big as your whole living room. Well, yeah, because she was going to work at uh, Cost Cutter Toys. She was going to work at the new toy store that was opening up. And you'd already been in there and seen all the new toys they had, things we'd never even heard of before. So here's the backstory on that is uh, there was... At one point in Bellingham, over by the big movie theater that was more or less our home away from home, mm-hmm. there was a big box store that had become multiple things over its existence, and there was a big sign up in the summer, I think, that said, coming soon, cost cutter toys. So you put a sign up like that in front of a big, giant concrete <laughs> building, shit gets real. <laughs> Your imagination starts to go wild when you're trapped in the brain and body of a fucking, what, 10-year-old kid? Uh-huh. So you start imagining what incredible things they have there because you've been to the other toy stores in Bellingham. There one's in a basement of a fucking hot, of a fishing store. Right. Um, and the rest are and just please, like... please, please, you said that with a bit of disdain, but that's oh, one of the and, most magical and, things that ever and existed. And let's be honest, the Jaeger's basement was like fucking Hogwarts. Right. Absolutely. But, Regardless, this new toy store was showing up, and since you couldn't see through and see inside as to what the toys were, you could only imagine the amazing toys they had and the and Star you, Wars figures. And you filled that store. Oh, I filled that store. It was overflowing out the door with toys that have never been made. Now, it was so disappointing when they opened the doors of that store, and I walked through there, and it was just a normal store. It was, and it's true. What you, the, the, the picture you painted of what the wonders we would see, like we were going to Wonka's chocolate factory or something was, was it, it, I'm like, no, why can't life be as good as the way Bill says it? And I was mad. I was mad that Bespin wasn't real. And throughout our lives, every once in a while, I've just said the word Bespin to you at various times when I need to make a point, but I'm glad it happened. And this is the messed up thing. Is that over time, certain memories, you, you kind of can't distinguish them from reality. I feel like I touched that thing. I feel like we played with it. I feel like we landed the Millennium Falcon on the landing pad. It was so big that it had separate landing pads for the different ships. All the things you told us about it, that it might as well, in my memory, it's, as, it's so far away now, it's real. Yeah, I was a terrible person. No, that's my point. I'm telling you. I, I don't know. Are we at 44 and... You're 40, 45. Are we sitting here having a conversation about anything if this stuff didn't go down when we were little kids? No, probably not. I don't think so. Okay, so let's move ahead a little bit. That's that's a real... Just imagine this guy. We have fun. We laugh. He tells me crazy stories. I and think he's a lunatic. One day, the Bespin story happens, and it's almost is a deal breaker. It's almost a deal breaker, but it's not. It's a real test. But this is also punctuated by you being beaten by children on the playground for various different things because you because other people won't buy into the story and then remember when i basically stopped going to school like there was a period where there were some there were twin brothers that i was friends with don't say their names but no 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 there were twin brothers that i was friends with and i think actually my mom had a falling out with her parents because they got we all got really close really fast and they did like garage sales together and stuff and there was some sort of a falling yeah, out. Yeah, I like remember it translated all into a falling out between me and these boys. And as soon as that falling out happened, those boys turned very adversarial. Yeah. And were cruel in a way that a lot of kids, at the time I wasn't used to, 
like a concentrated campaign of cruelty. Right. You know, I mean, there was the school bully or whatever. Well, twins are kind of evil just to begin but yeah, with. Yeah, these guys kind of took it to the next level, and it got to the point where I just wasn't happy going to school, and I was faking being sick. How long was it? This was the majority of my time at Shuxon. Oh, oh, okay. Well, that's okay. So Shuxon is the middle school that we both went right. to at this. So I want to I want to touch on one more thing before we get to Shuxon. Okay, sorry, I'm jumping ahead. Of that. I don't remember you but staying out, but um, I I also want to let you finish your point about that. Oh, you know, there really wasn't a point. It was just I literally was so kind of tired of a situation that I had kind of gotten myself into that I couldn't get myself out of that I was willing to just pretend I was sick and stay mm-hmm. home from school rather than have to go and face that. So there were definitely. There were far more negative aspects to the my mouth sometimes getting my ass kicked. Well, I would say that the worst the worst time for you had to be junior high. Had to be. Oh yeah. Cuz you really came into your own in high school. Yeah, high school was awesome, but junior high sucked. And 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 grade school was awesome. Yes. Um but yeah, junior high was rough for all of us, I think, but I feel like you took it on the chin hardcore during during junior high. But okay, you lived in an apartment building, and the gate to the apartment building from the from the parking lot opened to the, the grade school we went to into the playground. At one point, and once again, I don't want to say names, but there was a there was an attempted murder. There was a shooting like two doors down from your apartment. No, it was right next to the gate. Um, well, I thought someone knocked on the door and they opened so yes, the door. So yes, you're right. You're right. You're right. Sorry, there's I'm mixing a bunch of data up here. Well, I was I lived far away. So there probably was more violence there because it was a pretty rough part of town, actually. There was, you know, at the time when I was living there and growing up, I didn't really understand it the way that I do as an adult. Yeah. There was a lot of domestic violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were a lot of, like, breaking and entry. We're talking mid to late 70s. Yeah. I mean, and I remember coming home from school. And and... I came home from school one day and got all the way into the kitchen and was getting ready to, like, make myself something to eat when I realized the kitchen window was broken. And that's about the same time I started hearing footsteps upstairs. So I booked mm-hmm. and I booked and whoever was upstairs like stealing shit from us finished their stealing and left. Oh, wow. Um, and I mean, that's just one thing. And, uh, you know, we had a car burn up in the parking lot in the middle of the night because somebody tried to steal it and botch the hot wiring. Right now, we it's not like we live in Detroit, but this no, was a this was a shitty place that we ran around like it was our playground. It's an area that is the sketchier part of town. I mean, it's a lot more low income housing. There's a lot of uh, you're on the cusp between the city limits and the county limits. Yeah, um, and that's where you know a lot of a lot of the people that not they're not undesirables, but I mean, it's where a lot of people that don't have the means or luxury to live in the city neighborhoods. Yeah, end up now. This is the thing, though. The kind of kids we were and the kind of parents we had, we didn't have bad parents, but we just opened the door and went out into the world. Of course. We didn't. We No cell phones. Nothing. We, I mean, we would walk miles away from home. We'd go into places that were dangerous, and it didn't matter. It's not like we were going into more dangerous places because the place we were – I'm staying at your house or I'm staying at another kid's house a couple houses down, and, you know – like you said, cars burning up, people, someone's getting shot. It was a much rougher and more dangerous world, and we had infinitely more freedom, I think, than most kids It wasn't kids out of the question, days. probably, for us to cover 15, 20 miles on foot. It was insane. It, on a Saturday. We would get up and walk up. We would start walking out to like 7-Eleven, and yep. then we'd end up going to Jaeger's, and then before long, we'd end up over by Sea Home, and then we'd have to get back home. 
yeah, I don't know that when I was grade school I ever walked that far, but with skateboards, as soon as those came into the picture, oh, for absolutely. sure. absolutely. But, but, I mean, we'd sometimes get lost and and then find, <laughs> figure out where we were and come back. I mean, it was insane. So I just, it, it, it blows my mind to think that considering how crime stats have changed over the years, right? Nobody's, I doubt people's parents are letting their kids run free like this in the world anymore, but it's probably actually safer now for kids to do that than it was. Yeah, and you know what? There were bad things that happened back then, too, and we just didn't realize it. No, or it was like, you know, the the impact of what it means that the guy got shot when the when he opened the door was, it was right. for kids, it's more like, oh, like cops and robbers, or it's, you know, it's, it, 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 obviously there was an air of things being more serious that was kind of freaky and weird. Well, and the shooting was a big deal for me. It was really traumatic because, so we were in this apartment building, and my mom hadn't become the manager of the apartments yet. Right. So our friend Bobby... His parents were managing the apartments and they had a tenant that lived down near the end of the complex that had become a little bit of a problem. Um, and she had been late on paying rent and had had some really unsavory like biker types and stuff coming and going. Um, there'd been some fights and the police had been called out and stuff. And finally through lack of paying rent and stuff, they just went on ahead and said, all right, we're evicting you. And it was like two nights after they served the eviction notice to her. Somebody showed up at Bobby's parents' door and knocked on the door. And when Bobby's dad looked out the window to see who it was, they shot him through the window. Okay. And that's the, that's the kid that chased you around with the yes. cotton on his face. Yes, that's Uncle Sam. Oh, oh, okay. I'm going to jump back. We tell one more grade school story. <laughs> and then we're going ahead. <laughs> you put a tack on Bobby Taylor's seat in that second, third grade class. Here's the thing. You see this in movies, but you've maybe never seen anyone do this in real life. You put a tack on Bobby's seat and he sat on it. It stuck in his ass and he bled. You know, I'm sure that wasn't even the first tack that I'd placed. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I, I placed a tack at Roosevelt as well. <laughs> How did they know it was you? Because there was never any question as to who did it. It was, you were fingered immediately for doing it. You know, and I read it in like an Archie comic or something. <laughs> You you probably were the kid who would see the thing in the comic and actually do it in real life. Of course. All right. Because comics were just chronological retellings of things that happened in real life. <laughs> Warning labels are because of you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I so, mean, I'm not the guy that shot the missile from the Viper down my throat and choked to death, but I sure as hell shot that thing into my mouth at one point. Yeah, you also would have shot that into someone else's mouth. You would have said, here's some candy. <laughs> okay, maybe not that mean. <laughs> All right. We're going to, we got to get ahead. Yeah. So we both go to the same junior high, Shuxon. It sucked. There's almost nothing good about that, except you start building some relationships with some people that are pretty good. And right about that time, you move away. Your mom moves you first to Ferndale, so you're far away from me. We, we see each other sporadically, but it's a little bit harder because we can't get to each other as easily. Right. And, uh, and then a little ways after that, you move out to Linden, which is like 20 minutes away. And I, the weird thing is we saw each other more after that. And, and we started having more of a, like a grown up relationship. Once you get out to Linden and we're in high school and we're becoming like, we start getting mobile. You get right. a, Once the you get a license year comes around and I get a car and then a year later I get a license and then things start really, really happening. But I'm going to tell one story about junior high and it goes, and this goes back to that apartment building. Somebody tried to kill us, you and me, while we were riding our bikes. We're riding yes. our bikes back from downtown 
to my house, which is halfway out to Bill's house, and he's going to ride his bike the rest of the way out to Ferndale, which is like a total trip for him of like four miles. For me, it's like two miles. As we're coming up the way, this like silver, was it a Firebird or a Camaro? Yeah, it was some sort of a muscle car like that. Okay, let's call it a Firebird. I think yeah, it was. Yeah, that's about right. But it's like, it's driven past us like a couple times, and you're clearly agitated. And then this, so we're going up this hill, and this car comes up to the top of the hill and stops on the other side of the road. And I can see the people. There's a young guy kind of with long hair driving it and some older woman, probably old enough to be his mother. Turns out it was yes in the passenger seat. And you make some comment like, Oh, this is, I want them to just, they just need to go away or something like that. Right after that, this thing peels out. Like he just floors it, spraying gravel everywhere, comes straight across both lanes, cr- like, like across his lane, crosses the yellow, right at us. Right, we, we dive in the ditch. ditch our bikes into the ditch. And he t- his wheels touch the gravel on the side where we were. I'm convinced that it, even if he was just trying to be scary, he still could have hit us. Sure. They, they didn't know who the hell I was. That guy was coming after you. And was it just you that was with me? Was yeah. it just the two of us? It was just two of us. Okay. So, um, we bail into the ditch and they take off. And then we pick ourselves up out of this thing and you're totally beside yourself. And you said it was someone from the apartment. Yes. And this was someone who didn't like your mother or something from the apartment. Yeah. And this is weird. I don't remember what the exact circumstances were in regards to how things got so bad. Because I don't want this to be this whole thing where like people are under the impression that my mom was like a shady character. No, no. Like wonderful woman. No, no, no. It's just, she had the misfortune of making some very interesting friends. Yeah. And this guy and his mom were some of those friends. And, uh, my mom had worked with her and they had done, or they had tried to do a little bit of a business of doing like estate sales mm. and they'd had some limited success and, for whatever reason, things fell apart between the two of them in regards to that relationship. Right. And as a byproduct of that, there was some sort of an adversarial thing that, and this word keeps coming up, but there was some sort of negativity yeah. that came up with that that person's son. And, and he was somehow, the car. Yeah, and somehow I got pulled into all of that because prior to that, when things were good between my mom and his mom, he was... Not really like a babysitter type, but he was the guy who would be out working on his car in the parking lot, putting his stereo in. Mm-hmm. And we'd talk about music, and he would like play play different heavy metal bands and stuff for me, and try to interpret songs for me, explain, well, this is good, and this isn't good. And So here's what I remember, is that we then were worried the whole rest of the mile and a half home to my place, or whatever it was, that these people would come back. So we sure. were pulling off into people's driveways every time a car was coming from either direction. It took a long time to get back there. It's pretty rural out where I lived. We get there. You call your mom. You've been stoic the whole way. But you pretty much lost it when you called her and told her what had happened. And she came and got you. And, you know, nothing... Nothing really, there was nothing much more that came of that. No, but it's not like anyone was calling the cops and said these people ran our kids off the road. It was just it's like a different time. So I'm probably sixth grade, you're probably seventh grade when this happened. Yeah. And you've heard this story before, but I was staying over like a month later, I'm staying over with another kid that we knew near there, near your old apartment. You don't live there anymore. And during the day, I see that car and I know it's the same car because I remember the car. I probably remember it from when you lived there and that guy was playing the heavy metal, like you said. So that night I'm staying over at this friend's house and I'm, I mean, how old are you when you're in sixth grade? You know, old enough. 
Well, I, yeah. I decided I was. So when everyone went to sleep, I got up and I went and got nails from his father's toolbox. Like he's got tool stuff out on the back porch. And I snuck the two houses over and I crawled into this guy's car and I, pu- I pushed the nails into the tires so that when he backed it up, they would push the rest of the way in on all four tires. And that was literally like the most I could do. And I was scared shitless, but I also felt like something had to happen. Yeah, that guy sucked. He had a miserable life. Um, Maybe he's listening to this podcast. I flattened your tires when I was 12, asshole. Well, yeah, he ended up in jail, I know, at one point. Well, he tried to run little kids off the road. He was a pretty bad dude, and he ended up getting involved in some even worse stuff. Oh, I don't feel bad about it. In fact, I would encourage anyone to do similar things. Okay, if you can go back in your life and get revenge, or at least feel like you did. (laughs) This went really dark, really fast. Oh, I don't think it's dark. It's a, it's a somehow a joyous story I mean, from my childhood. They're inter- interesting memories, and they're well, very much are... a part of who we are and right. kind of why we are. Yes. Okay. And so that I couldn't let it stand. Like there sure. wasn't anything happened before. So okay. So then we've got these years where we see each other very rarely, and high school happens, and then we get we start we start getting mobile, and I can get out to you, and you can get to me. But the interesting thing happens in high school because we're both probably going almost divergent directions mm-hmm. and then you start skateboarding mm-hmm. and w- one of the very first times i can remember where it was like man he's on to something there right we neither one of us could get that break dancing shit figured out two years no, earlier no 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 it just wasn't it wasn't our thing um Yes. And one of the things that I enjoyed, I liked about that is a lot of the people that I started hanging out with in junior high and become closer friends like Randy and then later Sean Day and John Dodd, who um, these are all great friends of mine in high school, uh, in, in junior high and, and leading up into that. We all got into skateboarding at the same time. There was like a Christmas where everyone got skateboards or got money to put together with their allowance to go buy skateboards, you know, and it was so I got a Madrid Billy Ruff uh Shortly after you that, got a Lucero. Oh, it was a Lucero. It was yeah. a Madrid Lucero. Oh, you're absolutely. I got the rough. You got the Lucero. Was Billy Ruff your first board? No, my first board was a. Uh... No real board. Your yeah. first real board. Yeah, that, that that was my first real board from an actual reputable skateboard. Was it Billy Ruff? We all had shitty skateboards prior to that, but this is real skateboarding. This is right. when we like embraced the lifestyle. So okay. Thank you for clearing up that I thought my first board was your first board, but time has gone by since then. So very shortly, we're skateboarding and you're skateboarding, you're reading Thrasher magazine. All of a sudden punk rock starts poking its head in. You know, we're all, we'd all been listening to some metal, you more so, I think. Exactly. No, and if you hadn't have gotten into skateboarding and punk rock, I was inching dangerously closer to becoming a hasher. Yeah. You know, I mean, when I went to Vista in Ferndale, I wanted to have a BMX bike, and I had looked at, we had looked at possibly buying, like, a dirt bike, you know? And yeah. We, we I remember you almost got a little motorcycle. Yeah. And it didn't happen. Exactly. Yeah. But you live in the county, and that's mm-hmm. the sort of things that people do. So, that was the direction that I thought I was going to be going when I was out in Linden, because I didn't want to do sports, and I didn't want to be one of the popular kids. Or even, and yeah. really, I mean, there weren't hardly any Heshers in Linden or any, like, serious, like, metal kids or anything like that. So, you know, I could have been a pioneer. Which is, you were, with skateboarding in Linden. You and a few other people that we met at the time, you know, who, who got into it, too. That's true. What, was there, like, four, five skaters in Linden? And who knows, there may have been a, a weird, like 
period in the 70s or early 80s. Yeah, but this is... In that whole first wave of skateboarding, but... But we're talking 85 forward skateboarding. Right. Powell Peralta being a big deal. That whole, like, Hosoi, Tony Hawk, Lance Mountain, all Absolutely. these... Absolutely. Bones Brigade videos coming out, Thrasher Magazine rises to prominence, Transworld... I mean, skateboarding became everything. Bad Boy Club, and Jimmy's... Oh, and... the clothing. We had to do it all. And so... But the thing about it is, is that finally, there was this world where all of the shit that you had gone through that I'd seen you go through where you were different. And so you were getting pecked. You were the bird with the funny white feather on top that the other birds were going to peck until you were dead or the feather was gone. Like, you know, like all of a sudden we were putting those feathers on our own fucking heads and saying, peck me asshole. I mean, that's, that's kind of, you know, it was like, you're, 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 you're at that rebellious age anyway. And it's like, okay, I am going to go wear stupid clothes. I'm going to go, go get a trench or not a trench coat or a, or a, an army jacket and draw a big skull on the back and some black flag bars. Although I've never heard this black flag band cause we don't really have a record store here, but it looks really <laughs> cool and thrasher and the stickers and all that shit. And then all of a sudden dudes are starting fights with me <laughs> guys. When I'm not with you, it, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, it, 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 it was not terribly surprising to me to be an outcast like that. And, but it felt like, okay, now we're all more of an out, more outcast, but we're doing something creative. We're, we're doing something creative for the, yes, we all look weird, but we're doing, we're skating and we're getting better at something with the skill. And there's this whole punk rock thing. And maybe there's even more to that than a skateboarding. Right. Do you, I mean, and that's, that was kind of, that's how, when I look back, that's how I think about how I felt. I didn't have as many words for it, but I knew I had this great swelling sense of arrival in my life. Right. When I got to that point and was very excited that you were a part of that. So how is that? I mean, I'm not putting words in your mouth. How, what, what other, what other, um, descriptive, you know, the no, I mean, that's that really time. it. There was, you know, most of the time before that, you know, there's, there's that whole, uh, spark of recognition sort of thing that you get where you see someone and because of the way that they're dressed or, you know, something that they, there's something about them that makes you think, I don't know that person, but I kind of know that person. Uh-huh. Um, so that's the great thing about skateboarding and punk rock is that for the first time, there was a spark of recognition, even with people that I didn't know, um, to where I I could go someplace. And for the longest time, you know, I mean, I was never the sporto kid. I was never the, the math nerd or anything like that. So there wasn't a lot of people in school that I could identify with. I didn't have a clique or like a peer group or anything like that. But suddenly with skateboarding and punk rock, everybody that was in this little lifestyle of skateboarding and punk rock was a peer. Yes. And you started making good friends. And, like, and people to this day who you are still friends with. Absolutely. Who are awesome. Absolutely. Punk opened all the doors. Yeah. And skateboarding to a certain extent. We had to get in. We had, it, we needed a way in. But that was from the time frame when skateboarding and punk were joined at the hip. Yes, but, it, and also that there was, I mean, we were in Bellingham and you're in, you're in Linden, you're in a much smaller place. It's not like there was a vibrant punk rock scene, you know no. what I mean? But you combine it with something you can do every day, like skateboarding, and there's more and more skateboarders all the time. And most of them gravitate towards, it, it's, it becomes a building but block. But the punk rock scene was only like a year away. Yeah. I mean, it came so fast when it. Oh, and there would be some people that would say, you're wrong. There were five of us and we were the, and there, sure, sure. I know who those people were. I mean, they were hanging out on Cornwall on the benches. No, no, downtown, the, the, the punk were... rock scene that I got to know and call my home, you know, like I felt like that came relatively quick. 
You know, yeah. the high school wasn't over before we were already making inroads into some of that stuff. You know, you before me. Well, you became. You had, you had friends with people that were doing bands even in high school. Yes. Yes. And that's, that's and where I, we That's all... the difference. Like, I really didn't. In high school, I had Briar. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would go to Briar's house after school and we would do Wait, something. But let's get does to that Bri- later. Does Briar do a, a, a musical project now? Yes. Oh, that might be the lead-in music yes, to this music. podcast. Very good. So Briar is one of your friends in Linden. Becomes one of my friends. And he's in an Linden. important piece of this puzzle. Absolutely. Uh, so you meet. There's a bunch of other kids out there, and we start doing stuff like building half pipes. Yes. And you, you started excelling at anything creative or construction wise, like artwork or put. You know, you were very good at the visual aspects of punk rock and skateboarding, I and was- functionally. No one ever skated on a better half pipe than one you built. I mean, at, around there, as far as I'm concerned. That was a good ramp. A couple. Weren't you involved in a couple of them? I had less of a role in the Van Cleek half pipe, but I definitely, I got to learn vicariously from all mm. of the mistakes of the quarter pipe and the half pipe that Jeff and Brian and his friends built. So you built this little mini ramp in a garage up, up there, and we would skate it at least once a week, blaring music. Oh, yeah. And just, we all learned so many great tricks on that. And then we ended up even having a show out there. Uh, Take Charge came from uh, uh, Spokane. Who else played that show? It was Take Charge, At Odds, Extremity. Yeah, I think that was it. Was that right? That, that's not, um, first Did Extremity step. play? Oh, First Step. Yeah, First, first step, step played, played. too. Uh, this is not the first step that hardcore people would know from this, you know, from the modern time. This was a band called First Step from Bellingham from like the late 80s. So... So that was a that was a really good time, and I feel like you really came into your own. And then you started onto something that was very important. Um, and Brian McLeek used to talk about how this was your special skill. Brian McLeek was one of the friends that we made at the time out there, um, who we're still friends with to this day. Um, he said you had an ability to bridge gaps between people. You could go out and meet somebody, and basically bring that person into the fold of the people who you already knew. And so people like Ron Gardepi, when he's singing for Brotherhood, I didn't meet Ron first. I believe uh, like Jason and, and Brett Van Horn, but it wasn't until you started getting involved with like Ron and people down in Seattle that that, that link kind of happened between Seattle and Bellingham and the hardcore scene. And maybe Ron will have a better recollection of kind of how we were introduced. I mean, I definitely remember... Obviously in Bellingham, there wasn't an awful lot of selection for music. So if you wanted to get anything new for punk or hardcore or anything like that you traveled you went to seattle this was way before the internet and even really mail order so oh it was starting though right because you're the only person i ever knew that sent gi joe's to revelation to get rare records and this you did is true. and made people jealous as hell yeah that's a different story altogether but it's but it's amazing because some of those awesome old Revelation records, he put that thing out, send G.I. Joe's, you did it. Jordan sent you a care package of of awesome records. And we couldn't get that stuff. There was no, you know, no record no, store, cool. no nothing was, that we could go to for that in Bellingham, certainly. It was one of those things that was like almost urban legend in the hardcore scene, but it actually worked. It actually worked. And I know it worked because I, I saw you get it. Oh, yeah, and I got the letter that had the incredible promise in it that was like, if you have anything more, send them to me. I have great things coming out, like the judge, Chung King can suck it on white. (laughs) And we didn't even know what that was, but it was just like, oh, my God, I've got to get that. So I think I sent more stuff, and I never got anything else back from that. 
Yeah, but I think you really blew the blew the wad on the first. Load. Yeah, the first <laughs> stuff I sent was so good that I should have sent the second stuff first. <laughs> um, so that was amazing. So you're you're instrumental in linking up people from Bellingham, and, and so we we had started putting on shows. And I, I really do say that some credit to that has to go to Jason and Brett. Though, of course. I think that they did a lot of the groundwork and maybe socially, like for whatever reason, there was just a more of an immediate, immediate, like kind of click between Ron and I at the time. But. Well, and I'm, I, I met Ron because of Jason and Brett. Right, and so... I think that Jason and Brett were the person that they knew more was Greg. And that could and, very and, well and be to a certain extent, John White. Yes, that's who. And when it was when they and were just some right kids coming down from Bellingham to see a show, John was leaving Brotherhood, and Ron was beginning to take over those responsibilities. And they had gone in and they had re-recorded the vocals for the demo. And one of the very first shows post that demo getting re-recorded would have been the one that we went to out. I think at like Lenny's basement. Well, you were at the show where I met Ron at Lenny's basement, and you probably met Ron at that show too. Right. But, but here's That's the thing: what I'm thinking it was how do you become the guy that is the contact, the primary contact for shows in Bellingham? Because that happened. God, I don't even remember. I mean, I and know if you that... remember, we put on ten oh seven resolution. At, this is post Brotherhood, right? Ten oh seven resolution, suspended animals, all these other bands. First that step, was right at the aftermath house. No, it was that uh, it was at the hall, the hall that we only ever rented for one show. No, that was the aftermath house. The hall was the show with Galleon's lap. That was out. Uh, that was out towards. Um, that was out towards. That uh, was the Laurel Grange. Laurel Grange. That's Galleon's lap. Yes, but you've jumped ahead like about two years. Okay. There was a. Uh, I carried for years the actual Give the flyer. Um, I carried the little flyer, and I actually think I can pull it out right now oh and show God. it to you. Um, it's so – if it's in here. Otherwise, I, I may have saved. I may have put it in my safe. But we we did this show. So what oh, you need not... to know is that Dave is rifling through his wallet. Look, man. Do you see what is on this old piece of plastic? It says $4, 7 p.m. It says show, resolution, 10 of 7, second nature, suspended animals, and – I think first step. The actual paper is gone. Oh yeah, hardcore lives. But it transferred. X, 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 X. But it transferred onto the plastic. Extremity. Extremity. Yes. Oh, so first step just got added to it. No, because first step wouldn't have been around by then. Oh, that's a good point you're making. Now all of a sudden my memories first step, are, coll- are colliding, first and I'm step thinking was you can over. be right. See, first step is the reason why. I got into punk rock and, and hardcore as more than just a consumer. Right. Because they played a show that was part of a festival and they were with like a very much a, the odd duck band that was some like college sponsored thing or whatever mm-hmm. at that aftermath house. Aftermath and, house. Right. It's the two story house across from the funeral home. But it's like a hall in the bottom right. part. You're yeah. calling it a house, but it's a hall. Right. But that's also where Resolution played. Yes. In that show. Because that's where I met Matt Matsuoka right, from 1007 I too. I walked in, he was right there. Okay, you were calling it a house and I was calling it a hall. Yeah, well, it, it's a giant house that became a great, like a Grange Hall type of thing. All right, we just wasted a lot of time talking about the exact same place. Exactly. <laughs> but the, the point that I want to get to is first step was, was playing there. Yeah. And I was out in the car with Brett and Jason um, and I think Dave, Logan. Yep. Um, at the time. 
And they said, hey, do you know the lyrics to Break Down the Walls? And I was like... Let me guess. You said yes and had no idea. I was like, no, I don't. Um, <laughs> I really don't listen to a lot of Youth of Today. But play it for me a few times. Um, and like, you know, maybe. And they said, well, you're going to sing it tonight. <laughs> so we're going to play it for you. You're going to learn the lyrics. And like, I think Brett wrote them down for me even. So we sat and we listened to the song in the car a few times. And then... uh First step plays, and when it comes time, Longstreth hands the mic over to me. Yeah, I remember. Um, and I sing Break Down the Walls. <laughs> and holy shit, it was like Life getting changed. struck by lightning. Yes. It really was. That is fantastic. Because that was like, well, now I got to do this again. That was amazing. But so, so, And it wasn't an amazing moment, and it probably was a just god-awful rendition of Break Down the Walls. But in terms of the way that it suddenly opened up something inside of me and all of a sudden there was a road in front of me that literally moments before hadn't existed yes um yeah it was pretty it was a pretty incredible moment for me um and i mean it's it's always going to be the moment that i remember in regards to why anything that happened after that point in my life probably in some way or another was influenced by that Okay, that's fantastic. That's the that's your that's your hardcore moment. That's your like straight edge moment. Yeah, hardcore straight edge moment right there. Okay, but shortly after this, and I mean it, it seems like a long time in my memory, but when I look at a calendar, it's not a long time at all. Shortly after this, you become the contact for shows for touring bands. Ron is putting on, he's booking stuff, and he's getting in contact with you. And we didn't have a good place to put on shows, and we would wing it every single time. It was based. You on... say we, but I think you were winging it. You we know, were try- I I never felt like I was alone in the endeavor though. I'm I'm glad because there was a few of us around at the time who were definitely trying to help and we'd pitch in money if it and was I like mean, exactly. When it came down to it logistically, like I may have been the guy on the phone, but at the end of the night when the band got paid and we were cleaning up the mess or whatever, you were there and you know, there were a few other people that I can I can say were always there and part of it. Well, if I Whether, remember correctly, we needed to know for sure that we were going to be able to pay inside out $200, inside out and forced down yes. $200 for the show that ended up being in your garage. Yes. And and I think it were, we were originally trying to book it someplace else and it had to get moved to be at your garage. And it wasn't the first show that we did in the garage. I want to say that we did a show before that with, it wasn't a Galleon's Lap show. Nope. But we did a show with The Offspring. Okay, that actually happened in your garage. That happened in my garage. Okay, that was that's also... a very weird thing because... It was The Offspring. People, <laughs> to, to people outside of like the Northwest Hardcore thing, The Offspring is a pretty big deal. Now, this was the Nemesis Records Offspring. Yes. This is before MTV, um, Keep Them Separated, and all of oh, that. Yeah. But this was still like... This was a band that... There's a punk band on tour. Yeah, there's a punk band on tour. I'm pretty sure uh, that the stench. The stench played that too. Yes, so stench and offspring. And there were what I loved about that is there were a couple people there. Like not not everybody knew how to deal with the stench, but there were a couple people that were like, finally something I really love. Like when the stench played, right? And that was always something I remembered that like there were they had that hippie jam kind of yeah because they were from Utah. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah. So that okay, so that happened, and then Inside Out happens. Right, and the stench show, if I remember right. It wasn't the first show. The first show that we did in the garage was At Odds, Extremity. Yes. Um, no, Second Nature, not At Odds. Or, you're, you're right. Second Nature. Um, 
And I think it was a resolution show. With and it was just resolution. Yes, because there's two different resolution shows. There's resolution playing with shelter in your garage. Is that right? Oh, you're right. But there's there's so it may not have even no, been a big band. No, no, because no, there's two. There's two. It was. It was. It was because there was one with Ron in resolution where he's wearing like a he's wearing like a knit sweater. And then there's another yeah. one, the shelter ones. He's wearing like a Washington State. So the like, knit sweater is the Inside Out show. He, they didn't play that, did they? Yeah. Did Resolu- uh, yes. Resolution did play that? Yes, they did. Uh, okay. Well, anyway. Because those are all from the same roll of film, That all those photos. But I want to make sure people understand what we're talking about here. You're living in this little Rambler house. This is a teeny like, right split-level ranch. Not even split-level because it's One-car as- garage with Christmas ornaments and stuff from the house packed in there. Banana boxes. Banana boxes. Tons of banana boxes. Inside Out's on tour. Inside Out is Zach from Rage Against the Machine in his hardcore band prior to Rage Against the Machine. And of course it wasn't a big, they didn't have a record out yet, but they were hot. Like they were, people were trading this tape. Oh, the tape. Yeah. Oh, and it was the most amazing thing. And so people came down from Canada. There are picture, uh, like people came from Seattle and we had to make, Ron said we had to assure them that they'd be able to get 200 bucks. And when you're doing a, a show in your garage, you can't even, there's not a place where everyone comes in where they pay a door price, you know? It's a single car garage and this is Bellingham where it was hard enough to get the kids to show up, much less pay for something. Right. And luckily we did have the Canadian, we had like dudes from Strain and Sparkmarker and, and Gray and all these other people from Seattle were coming up for it. Guys from Undertow. This is what's fun about this is there are pictures, lots of pictures from this show, and it's a who's who of awesome bands in the crowd, and you can see that everyone is losing their mind because Inside Out is unreal. They're so good. Yeah. But the whole point about this is you were talking about people pitching in. People had to agree to put up money in case we couldn't get money at the door. And so Val Wonder put up money. Yeah. I believe Brian Van Cleek put up money. Oh, yeah. I put some money up, and I think you did the rest part. And we didn't make enough, so everybody had to kick in a little bit. By today's standards, it was nothing, but at the time, that sure. was a big deal. And I want to make sure that, that gets thrown out. Yeah, people, you know, stepped up and, and helped make it happen. And really, I mean, I think from that point on, every time that another band was brought up about, you know, this this band wants to play here or whatever, you guys were the people that I reached out to. And in my head, we were all doing it together. I mean, it was the thing. And oh, yeah, it oh, of course. Being, but it was still Bill's Garage. I mean, sure. you still were the one that said, no, 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 we'll and make this happen. at one point or another, it stopped being Bill's Garage, and then it went to Kelly's but Garage. But at some point, you had to look in there and go, and with that crazy person dream, say, we can, there can be a show in here. You oh, know? sure. We always did that. We always looked at it like, you know, if only we had a venue or something like that. But then the places that became venues in Bellingham sucked. Oh, it was always horrible. You know, we had like the Star Club, which, yeah. like... Had so much potential and it could have been something awesome. There was that basement where Seaweed and Fugazi played. Right. And here's the best part. When that got shut down, you actually went up to Fugazi and said, Yes. You could play in my garage. The problem is. If the show gets shut down, you could play in my garage. And I heard you say that to them. Yeah. Because there was a real risk. The fire marshal had shown up and they weren't going to let anybody play. It was like, I think right after Seaweed had played. Yeah. And yeah, Seaweed it, played and then they tried to shut the show down. It looked like the show was a bus. It was Seaweed beat happening. Yes. And Fugazi. And, you know, I mean, I was like, well, I really want to see these guys play. I went up to Ian and said, Mr. Mackay, you know, <laughs> my name's Bill. I do shows. We do shows in my garage. Um, nowhere near the scale of this. But if the police shut this down and you guys want to play, we can go do this in my garage. And I had been like, 
I ran to the corner and got on the payphone and called my mom and grandma and said, I may need to do a show tonight. Can you? And that would have been unreal. But a different story. Right. And it was, and it was, no, you know what? Um, if, if you can't make it so that all of these people can go, then we can't do it. And he was right. You know, like it would have been a, a quarter of the crowd at best. And it would have been probably the last show that we held at the house. Yeah. But you, you swung it all, you and, swung it all the pitches. But yeah, <laughs> we, we, we tried our damnedest to make the show happen. And, uh, Fugazi got luckily the, show got to go on in the venue and they were already set up and ready to play so they got to play sooner and now that's an interesting story what happened that night that is is i want to tell that story quickly um because it was a very strange thing so the entrance into this you said it was the basement club below star club yes the entrance to that was in the alley yes right downtown bellingham so fugazi is big like repeater has just come out and they're on that tour 1990 when they play the Seattle show was a Lake City theater or something yes. like the next night or two nights later and it was huge but Bellingham was much smaller um so all these people are lined up in the alley so it's just this big crowd of weirdos kids from the college punk rockers skateboarders you know types that Bellingham doesn't really know how to deal with and so we're all sitting there waiting and cop cars lights on enter both ends of the alley and it was like six cop cars, three on each side. Like they were, they were mobilizing for something that was going down. And they get out and they form a line from both ends and they close in on the crowd. And no one moved or did anything. I'm in this line. I'm looking. I don't know if you were there with me at when the, when that part happened. But it was, it was just you know a cast of characters that went to shows in Bellingham and then like kids from the college, right? So we're, no one's moving. No one's doing anything. And the police are like. Ready. I mean, they didn't have riot gear, but they were ready for something to happen. Right. They wasn't know? sure if there was going to be a fight or what. Yeah. So they close in and then they get kind of close to us and they looked confused. Like we've been given bad information. And so they kind of couple, you know, one guy like puffs up his chest a little bit and he's like, what's going on here? What, what is this all about? And some, some college kid was like, yes, we're, we're just waiting to get another concert. And it was just, and no one else said anything because everybody was just watching. Like, oh yeah, is that what you're doing? You're waiting in line. It was like, yeah. Well, wasn't it a rival promoter? I, if I remember right, the story was that I don't they were know. originally promised to play someplace, and then the guy started putting all these extra charges and stuff onto it. So I don't know. So the people that put the show on said, you know, we're going to find another place. So then they found another place, and it was basically around the corner from there. And that could be... So that guy is the guy that called the cops to try to get it shut down. Right, but the cops did show up. Yes. And then they turned around and walked back to their cars and left. And it was very weird. And everyone kind of looked at each other like, okay, you know, that that was strange. And we all get inside for the show. Two bands play. And then the cops raid it. So that, I mean, maybe the call came earlier. Maybe they got tipped off or whatever. The police come in and say, there's no permit for this show. It's being shut down. The promoter guy who was putting on the show is there. He's talking to the police. They're just, I mean, I remember he was talking to this cop. And the cop had his eyes closed and was just shaking his head back and forth. And while he was talking, then he'd just stop and say, it's not happening. It's over. Go home. And all, and no one wanted to leave because Fugazi was about to play. And it was just insane. And so finally, the person who had the permits, the owner of the club, showed up. And I watched them show the permit to the cop and say, this is legal. Why are you here? There is no reason for you to be here. Right. At which point... That cop signaled to a couple other cops in the room, and they all filed out and left, and the show went back on. 
And Ian said from the stage, I have never seen the cop shut down a show and then have to leave. And then the show go on again. Yep. Um, that was phenomenal. And it was just, now my take on it was always that they felt foolish for the thing in the alley and came back later to ruin fun. You know what though? Like if you remember right, we never had a show shut down. By cops? Yeah. Did they ever even show up? Oh yeah. The cops showed up at least twice to shows at my house. They showed up to the, to the shelter show and oh. God only knows what they thought when they pulled up to the shelter show and there's a bunch of punk rock kids smoking outside in the driveway or whatever. And then some Hare Krishnas. And yeah, I mean, what kind of a circus is this? Oh man. But we they just always managed to do it. And my grandma at various points went out and talked to the police. Yeah, that was, uh, come on. That's the reason. And we never had a show shut down. We always got to go on ahead and continue and, and, and go on with what we did. And it was just pure dumb luck because I've been at shows that have been shut down. Oh, sure. But we also learned not to be assholes. Right. I mean, that's the, they have the authority to, to screw us up, so we might as well be cool to them. There was a way to work outside of the system and yet still work with the system when the system inevitably like came charging in. Yeah. And we were always pretty good at being shrewd about that and being the right type of respectful or whatever. So it worked. That was the thing about all the shows that we did is that I don't think we ever had a band go away from playing in Bellingham having had a bad experience. What do you think was other than the Inside Out show, which is just so much bigger than anything else? What do you think was the coolest show that we did or that you were involved in? The coolest show that I was only peripherally involved in. I think the coolest show that ever happened in Bellingham was the Jehu show in the basement. Oh, that's years later. And we weren't involved in that. We only heard about it and went, but the same sort of can do attitude. Yeah. But we were out of Seattle for, or we were out right. of Bellingham for a couple of years. I, I was still living in Bellingham. When that, you were staying with me. Yeah, it, I was we, visiting or something. I we think. raced back from. Uh, but I will tell you that we had laid the groundwork in the years prior to that, the way we did shows. Okay. And the way that we would talk to bands and do whatever we could to make something happen by hook or by crook is the same way that those guys went up to drive like Jehu and said, look, you're playing a bar here tonight. Yeah. Half of the people in town that want to see you aren't old enough to get in. Yep. We will let you play in our basement. You guys can crash on our couch. We'll buy you beer, whatever, if you will come and play a show. And they were like, yeah, we need a place to do laundry. This can work out really well. And it was phenomenal. And yeah, sure enough, it was phenomenal. And and we also, that same day, watch a kid stand on their tour bus, strip naked, and light his dick on fire. Yes. We don't have to say any names. That's the can-do spirit of Bellingham as well. <laughs> I believe he called it Flaming Hoss. The thing that I always thought was funny was we were doing all this stuff. We were using any garage or any building or basement or hall we could find. Mm -hmm. And Bellingham had this giant movement of garage rock that existed (laughs) only in bars. They had a festival. That's right. They had a fucking festival that they called Garage Shock. We made flyers making fun of that. (laughs) And all the shows happened in bars. So, yeah, we did. We had our series of shows that summer. I think we called it all part, part of Bar Shock. But you know what? We did call it bar. But you know what? I think those guys were cool, and I liked mm-hmm. what they did. I absolutely did. I, I, the whole Estra scene and all that. No, Dave Kreider is the man. Cool. Cool stuff. But I, I at the time, it was it, it did seem very ironic. <laughs> so, um, no, but I'm not talking... Yes, that Jehu show was unreal. And that was... We, we got the call, and we were, on, we were both asleep in my apartment on Capitol Hill. And the call was, Jehu's playing in my house in an hour. Get here. Yes. And we have never sped from Seattle to Bellingham so fast. 
It's true. And it was so awesome. Okay. No, no, no. The shows that we put on, the shows that we were involved in, whether they were your, your garage, Kelly Ockengay's garage, which we'd call Doc Ock's garage, um, <laughs> or any place else. Because I have one that's a weird one that is, it stands out because it's so strange that I think it's so interesting. Econochrist in that backyard. Oh my God. That was a great show. That was one of those shows where I actually showed up late. I think I had to work. Yeah. Um, so I showed up late and by the time I showed up, Econochrist had just like gotten like one song into their set. Did you, did you, did you come in from the front or did I you look over the fence from the alley? Came in from the alley. I came in from the alley and it was one of those things where you had to get relatively close before you could hear what the noise was. I kind of have goosebumps. And then you looked <laughs> over the fence and there were these just everywhere, just punks. Yeah. As far as the eye could see, you like crammed in. into the space And it space was cool. That you could see into the yards and the houses next to it. And they were just empty yards. Oh, oh man, I'm hitting this. They're like empty yards with like a dog house and like, you know, and then this one fenced in yard just crammed in with punk rockers yes. and kids in the trees. Yes. Like an apple tree And on or the something. roof of the garage. Just all looking down, Econocross playing in one corner of this, of this, uh, of this yard and they weren't my favorite band or anything, but visually that image of oh, yeah. looking over the fence is, is I, it, it's, it's kind of like, I know it's real and, uh, but it seems like it, I made it up. I actually just saw someone post on Facebook, a picture of Econochrist playing in someone else's backyard. Awesome. You know, it had to be the same tour. And I, I was trying so hard cause I didn't, the picture didn't have a caption. I'm like, I just want to see one face in there. I recognize, I want to believe this is the same. Look for like Jesse or someone. Yeah, like that. exactly. But it wasn't. So that, that was awesome. Yeah. We did, I mean, we did some other fantastic shows. The Born, Born Against and Rorschach. Yes. I was going to say that's a very, very near and dear to me show. That was good with downcast. Yes. Yeah, it was awesome. That was really good. It, yeah, there was some fantastic stuff. Rain Like the Santa Trains made a big impression on us, too. Like, But that was maybe a year later. Maybe, I don't know. Did you get to see Verbal Assault at the show-off gallery? Don't even, don't even talk there to were, me. So there were other people doing shows around the same time or at, at various points throughout the time frame that we were doing shows. There was another kind of underground punk rock scene in Bellingham. Listen. But they were a little more exclusive at times. For my own sanity, Verbal Assault never played in Washington State. Okay. Twice. No. They never played in Washington State twice. They never played in Washington State twice. Neither of the times that they played here did they play. Yeah. I didn't miss anything. No. Okay. No. Because because you had important (laughs) food court duties to tend to. I did have a job. I was scheduled to work and I couldn't get out of it. But You were the guy in the food court with the strainer. No, not with the strainer. Wasn't it a strainer? No, I didn't do that. I just picked to up trays strain. and wiped tables. You didn't tables. have the strainer in your pocket for, for straining the garbage juice? For a couple of months, I had a job where I had to where I had to wipe some tables. But yeah, no, I didn't have no strainer. Sorry. <laughs> okay, so, all right. In the Greg Bennett podcast, we talk about you working at Kinko's and Greg coming in and seeing you at night. So let's jump ahead a little bit. Now okay. we have left Bellingham and Bellingham is what Bellingham is. And I leave, I get a job at Kinko's in the U district. I believe it was Seattle one is what we called it. Yeah. South end of uh, university Avenue. I leave, I have my little adventures there and then I get to leave to go on tour for the summer with Undertow. at which point you're working there. Yes. You, you can manage to finagle the job for me much in the same way that Ron finagled it for you. Right. Okay. And this is and this was my second attempt at living in Seattle because if you remember right, oh, there was an aborted first attempt. <laughs> you were going to live with Ron and Brian Bauer. Yes, Ron and Brian Bauer had an apartment <laughs> in the university district, and they said, "Hey, we've got a place." And the great Ron had just broken up with his girlfriend. 
Um, so there was a place that they that they felt like they could make room in the apartment somehow in such a way that I, I would be able to fit in. Um, and it was going to be a good deal because I could work in, um, I could get a job. At th this point, it wasn't a Kinko's job yet. It was just I could get a job um, and pay whatever I could for rent and we'd all bro down and it'd be awesome. And it turned out that it was the crawl space closet underneath the stairs. By the way, I've seen people make that into a killer bedroom. Right, right. And but it wasn't your speed. I was I was not the first tenant of, <laughs> nor the last tenant of that particular room in the Ron and Brian house. Um, however, for an 18-year-old guy from Bellingham, it just wasn't the, the living situation that I was looking for at the time. And it was a little bit of a culture shock to be in Seattle. And these guys lived pretty large, and I was still... Well, it just runs at a different speed than Bellingham. Yeah, we were I still hadn't kinda worked up to and... Seattle speed by any measure yet. It took a while. It wasn't easy for me either. And they, they mocked me mercilessly for yeah. going back to Bellingham. Yeah. It, Ron was trying to get everybody to Seattle. No, and, no, and, and I give him credit for that. And he did with most people that he tried. It even we even got you eventually. And I eventually <laughs> even moved into a place with Ron, and it worked out for a while until it didn't work out. Yeah, that's how. I mean, yeah, especially then, that's how stuff goes, right? Um, I mean, that's the way that all of these like hardcore roommate situations go. Is there's always going to be like ebbs and flows, and people are going to at one point or another get on each other's nerves. So let's talk about because i want to i want to link up stories a little bit here. right so we're greg bennett i i don't really have greg bennett memories before this and this is we talked about this in the podcast but you had gotten to know greg while he was making this book right graveyard shift and derek came in with greg the first time and introduced us okay so i'm almost entirely certain that totally that it was makes derek sense Harn that made that connection right so derek Harn, that he's another guy who connected a lot of people which is totally awesome so Greg talks about how you played the Earth Crisis demo for him and blew his mind. And it's not, it's, it's, it's got to be Firestorm demo, that early Firestorm demo you had. You know, I think, see, I had gotten the tape from Eric, who did uh, Cloud Break Zine back in uh, Springfield, Missouri. Right. He now, was okay, friends so. With Guav and those guys. And eventually Eric ended up moving to Syracuse um, and was like really, really tight with all those guys. So he had access to the recording stuff way before they had even finalized the deal with victory and all the rest of that. And what I like about this, this story that you're telling right now is that, so what you just, uh, you just, just jumped on the internet and found them in a chat room and you, uh, I guess no. you guys were just friends on Facebook or MySpace or something. Like, no, you know, Eric, I think we became wait, acquainted did, through zines, through zines. Through, these were, these were things right, that people printed at Kinko's. Did, everybody did zines and they printed them at Kinko's. And then, Ironically enough, getting a job at Kinko's, Eric at the time was working at a Kinko's in Springfield. Right. And we were working kind of shifts that overlapped. I was graveyard and he was like early morning shift. So one of the weirdest, coolest, like old school, hardcore dude ways of communicating in that little circle was to send each other faxes. Yes. <laughs> so we would send each other faxes. When, Wait, is a fax like an email? It was the equivalent of the email <laughs> slash Facebook poke or whatever. But yeah, we would just send faxes. Sometimes it was flyers or just a note saying, hey, dog, what's up? Whatever. It's just amazing that we were able to forge relationships with people in different cities and states right, when we, we could not contact them. It was the back of Maximum Rock and Roll. It, it was, was the punk rock uh, chat room 
in America online. No, not yet. Right? Not yet. You but didn't I mean, have that. But I mean, that was one of those things that we used from a very early point. That was still in Bellingham. You got to go. You got to go one more year. Ninety four. Okay. Ninety four. I, I, if it's summer ninety three, I don't think either one of us even owns a computer. But we were still using technology at that point. Yes, we were but, using fax machines. But email. And... The the explosion hadn't happened. Everyone didn't have AOL. Yeah, you're right. Everyone about that. didn't have modems. Like it was still that was still like some Ferris Bueller sci fi shit. Like, you know, or, or like, or war games, like put the, put the, put the old school phone in the cradle. This is true. <laughs> there were, and I, th- you were starting to hear rumblings about it. People would talk about, oh, this, this BB, it was, it was uh, BBC boards or something. BBSs. BBSs. What? I don't know. I did. I, it took me a little while to get there. Right. Um, so it was BBWs. <laughs> so, Big, beautiful, whatever's. <laughs> so. But this is cool. So you're trading stuff back and forth with this guy. And we had a lot in common with books and comics and music and stuff. So Dark, angry, violent right. writing. So Eric got me into Henry Miller. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I think I sent him the Fountainhead. And we definitely traded some comics. Um, you know, we were both into Sin City and Frank Miller. We were both into Sam Keith and the Max. Um and incorporating a lot of that imagery, of course, into hardcore, like whether it was flyers yep. or the f- funny little tour laminates that you would make. Yep, yep. Because if you left town... You'd have a tour laminate. ...to do something more than be back the same night, you probably made a laminate for it. There was a point in the late 80s, early 90s where you just put that kind of importance on your comings and goings if you were in the hardcore scene. You know what I loved about that is that we'd go, so when, when I'm out with, in 93 with Undertow, we're showing up in different cities and kids there have laminates that they're making too. Like yep. everyone's doing this thing. And, and they became just, really collectible. They were like Pokemon cards. It was fun. Yeah, it was good. All right. So you do you remember playing Earth Crisis for Greg? I do remember playing Earth Crisis for Greg. I want to say that I probably wasn't as aggressive in trying to get them to be on incision as the story you guys um, recollected. You know, I'm sure at one point I thought it would be great to do a record for this, but I think Eric had pretty much already told me oh. they've got something going with either right. Victory or Rev. But that same summer, though, you had just put out... I just put out the Ringworm. Ringworm. You put out Ringworm the Promise on a record label. Yes. The, the, it, the, was original the it was the first record you had ever put out. Orange vinyl and yep. black vinyl. You did it with a deal through Dutch East India Trading. Yes. Ron hooked you up with the connection to Ringworm? Yes. Ron came back from recording the Integrity LP because um, he went to Cleveland for that. Mm-hmm. And when he came back with the tape, he also came back with the Ringworm demo. Those guys had asked someone to give it to Ron. Right. Um, Because they were hoping that maybe Ron would do the same thing for them. And Ron was like, you know, I've already got a couple of other things going on. Um, If you think you're serious about wanting to do a label, you should hit these guys up. So I was just like, this demo is incredible. Of course I want to do this, even if it's only putting this out. So I reached out to those guys and they weren't interested in re-releasing the demo. They didn't want to do a 7-inch or anything like that. So it was just like, all right, well, what would it take for you guys to go into Mars and record with Karecki, who did the uh, Integrity LP, and do a full length. Bill, what kind of atmosphere could there possibly have been in the country at that time with the labels that existed? Victory was a label. Revelation was a label. There were all kinds of labels. How did some guy they didn't know from Seattle 
convince this band that was like so hot off that demo at the moment that, that to let him who did not have a label, did not have distribution resources. How did you do it? I don't know. You know, I think I just lucked out. Frank Novinick at the time was really kind of the guy handling all of the business of Ringworm. I think they were impatient to have something happen. Um, they knew something was happening with integrity. They knew that I knew the guy that was putting the integrity out. Okay. And I said, hey, you know, I can do pretty much the same sort of deal that Ron did with Overkill for integrity. You know, I can do that for you. Like, I can get the same distribution. We can get stuff together for you guys. They were looking at possibly going on tour. And it would have been good for them to have vinyl yeah. to take out on tour and sell. So it just was, I lucked out. I think I was the right phone call that morning that I got my foot in the door and it actually worked. Yeah. It was awesome. <laughs> okay. So then I come home from the other tour tour to discover that you have bailed. Prior to that, I was living, <laughs> I, so I had gone from living uh, in the house with Ron mm -hmm. to living in the apartment that you lived in with Jen and Hag. Yep. Um, and that was really fun, but at the same time, like, I was starting to feel like Seattle was still a little overwhelming. You gotta do six months. For me, yeah, and I guess you know, if I had hung out another month or two, it would have made all the difference. Because I went back to Bellingham, and then I was basically coming up to Seattle almost every weekend anyways. Right, but it was a good thing that you went back to Bellingham, because you go back to Bellingham. Right, I go back to Bellingham, and I was feeling kind of bad about it. I felt like I, you know, I'd failed again at trying to live in Seattle. Like Twice I struck out to the big city, and twice I let it kind of like intimidate me back to Bellingham. Um, and I had gotten into a place where I was living with Brian and Jeff and a bunch of those people. So I was in a nice house, and it was a kind of a good situation, and there was a show pretty much right after I got back to Bellingham that was happening for somebody's birthday in a shelter out at a park. And I knew some of the guys in the band, one of the bands that was playing, um, only very kind of as friends of friends. Um, you know, Mike Mitchell knew all those guys. Yeah. And I think Mike kind of was the guy that sort of negotiated that deal. So I went to this show and like was hanging out. And then after the show, you know, Mike got me started talking with Jason and I want to say it was like Justin. Uh, Justin sounds right. Yeah. I think it was Jason, the drummer of the band. Yeah. So I think it was Jason and Justin. They had a conversation and said, Hey, uh, would you like to be in a band? You know, the band that just played tonight, this is probably the last show that we're doing in this incarnation. Um, but a couple of us are going to stay together and we've got another person or two that we want to bring in and we want to start something different. We want to do more of a hardcore band. And if you're just interested in being a singer, you can come try it out and see, see if you like it. And that band was? And that band became, well, that was C-3PO. <laughs> I don't remember that. So the very first day uh, out at Sunset Storage, this, this unit of people came together <laughs> and had the audacity to uh, think that we were going to call ourselves C-3PO. Okay. And uh, I don't think any of us took it very seriously, but the songwriting stuff just clicked. You know, I think we wrote two songs that first day, like, like completely wrote and finished two songs um, and did them so many times that like, I was pretty much ready to just do those songs live. And those guys were just incredibly talented yes. musicians, you know, and the, it was very, very easy to write with those guys and the songs just kept coming and it was a really, really fun group of people. So we got that demo written 
I want to say within the span of like a month. The Jayhawker demo. Because, yeah, we were recording songs on four track or ghetto blasters or whatever by like the second or third practice. And then we went and we recorded the demo there in Bellingham in a kitchen. Um, I remember watching people from Seattle see Jayhawker and watching them go, oh, oh, this band. Oh, God, this band is awesome. And it was so, it was really, it it's just, weird because it felt I don't, good. I don't think we ever felt like we were that band. Like it was not everybody, a, not everybody, but it would kind of be like the like for me, it felt like some of the people who mattered, you know, the thing that cracked me up was that I was very much the odd man out in that band. Um, I was the guy that was way more firmly entrenched in the hardcore side of things. And the rest of those guys were way more comfortable with the punk rock side of things. And we would get opportunities to play shows with like Spark Marker and Undertow and Strain, which were just fantastic opportunities. I mean, yeah. anybody would have killed to play any of those shows. And we were getting asked to play those shows all the time because we were friends with those guys. And I think it bothered some of the other guys in the band that we weren't getting those sort of opportunities with more punk rock bands. Yeah, and there was always this weird sense of Bellingham... Like like I we was trying to lot. make I was trying to make the band into a straight edge hardcore band. Right, it's not what those guys were about, and we didn't really we didn't have anything lyrically that was about that. Um, you know, I always thought we were kind of a political, like hardcore band, um, but I also thought we were very punk rock. Like I felt like some of our bigger influences were like Born Against and Neurosis. Oh yeah, and, and so then I ended up putting out a seven inch for you guys, two song seven inch for Jayhawker. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got these really cool hand constructed covers with hidden messages in the art, and I love that. And it's one of the best records I put out on the record label on Excursion. I'm just very proud of it, and so happy I was able to do it. I wanted you guys to do more, um, but it came to probably too abrupt an end. Yeah, um, it just flamed out like an amazing thing, and you came back pretty quickly. Yeah, so Jayhawker played their last show. You know, I think we played with A Minor Forest. Sounds right. At Casa Que Pasa in yeah, Bellingham. I saw that show. Yeah. Um, and it was a weird after hours show there. Like the restaurant closed at nine and then we played. And then the next day I was on a bus to Portland. You moved to Portland. I moved to Portland and that actually stuck. Like I was, Yeah, I know it did stick and I was so angry. Well, yeah, it was weird and there was a lot of weird shit that happened. But going to Portland was another one of those kind of defining moments, I think, for me. Yeah, it me. just pulled you further away from me. And, you know, it was always like this. We got, we got an empire going, man. <laughs> yeah. So there was a lot of stuff. There was a lot of hardcore stuff that I feel like I missed out on. But there was a lot of other stuff that got developed in sure. Portland. Like I stopped. That was about the time that I really stopped drawing altogether. Okay. You're um, not making, you're not selling this to me. And I was writing. That's good. More. That's good. Um, and I was writing better. Okay. Um, in terms of songs and stuff, especially, I was I was definitely I, I was was writing better. I was writing more zine stuff, um, and felt like I actually was having a better understanding, kind of, of who I was. And unfortunately, like who I was was changing probably every couple of weeks uh, in Portland. I went through a few different phases there easily. Sure, and you were well. You were further away from home than you'd ever been. Right. And there was no going back. I was, back a, at I that was point. a fish out of water, and. In a lot of ways, I think I took it as an opportunity to go on ahead and reinvent myself a little bit. Yeah, it took me a little while to understand that, but I, I became pretty comfortable with the person that you became when you went down there. 
Um, it wasn't huge changes, but yeah, it was. They were they were significant enough changes that I remember they caused me as much distress as they caused the people around me. I um, was over it before you were right. <laughs> um, so you come out a so, little bit later with a new band. Yeah, right away uh, in Portland. I mean, the house that I moved into was a big punk house called the Powerhouse, and pretty much everybody in the house was in a band. Punky Rocket. There was Punky Rocket, there was Hutch. Yes. There was any of the Matt Hunter um, kind of ancillary side project bands. It was a great time for Portland. Um, And eminently talented people that had a lot of spare time. So there was always going to be a band. It was just a question of who. And it turned out that one of Matt's good friends, a guy named Josh, was interested in starting a band. And he had met some friends. Or made some other um, acquaintances. And all transplants. Um, and there was all transplants. All people that had ended up in Portland largely for college. Right. So they all had similar tastes in music and similar personalities. And we were like, well, let's go over to where you guys practice and see what happens. And that was another one where the songs just wrote themselves. Who came up with the name? Uh, Slow Side Down was, I believe, Steve. It's a good I want name. to say that's Steve Walborn. I remember thinking like, oh God, that, that's it was either Steve or Don. Well, whoever it was, it was good. Yeah, it's a that was a great name. And so you, I I ended up being able to do a four song seven inch for Slow Side Down on Excursion. Um, also, that's something I'm very proud of having put out. And then we did another four song seven inch ourselves on Red Alert Works, which was Don's label. Yep. And and then we had a song you on had some comps. Yeah, we had two different comps. It was a anti death penalty comp. I just can't live without it. Yes. Uh, and then I think we had a song on, um, shoot, it's like, it's called like, it's, it's, it's a really strange it's my one. life for. Yeah. Um, a, and I never actually got a copy of that comp. It was it's a pro-choice ago. comp. Yes. Yeah. I think it was, it's a born against on it or something too. Got something yes. weird else, something else pretty big on it. Um, that one I think was a uh, Coquitlam <clears throat> heartbreaker. Okay. Sounds was on right. That song, or the song on that comp. So. Again, this was, I mean, I think this might have lasted longer than Jayhawker, but it still was. Yeah, it was a much more serious endeavor. I mean, we knew right away that we were going to record. We came out, we recorded the first demo with Jake. Mm -hmm. Um, With Jake Snyder. Yeah, there in Woodenville. Stare Out 522 is what he's doing at the time. Yes. And you're recording that in the same place uh, where he's doing all the Stare Out stuff. And he had just finished doing the botch stuff for you. Wait, did he? record botch there he either recorded botch there or he did some mixing or mastering for you there or something because he played us the botch recordings okay but um, i'm not i'm not prepared to know the details of this right now because we've been down memory lane and i'm right. not i'm not up to date on this but that sounds right he played I, us some of the botch recordings and we were like oh this is a band we really want to play with nice um and it lucked out that we ended up getting those opportunities um but then we went back to portland now there was also a weird connection with you guys in bloodlet Yes. What was the what was the bloodlet connection? Uh, that was another one where Ron provided us with the seed, as he was really really good to. Because I mean, he was Seattle. Oh God, yeah. There was, and I don't mean to step on anyone else's feelings about that, but there was definitely a period in the late eighties where, if early you 90s. were in late eighties, early nineties, where if you were thinking about hardcore in Seattle, Ron was the name that came up. And Ron was the guy, for the most part, that everybody reached out to. If you wanted to play in Seattle, you wanted a record put out, whatever, 
you wanted to make sure that Ron. You wanted about a job, you. a place to live, a girlfriend. Exactly. <laughs> he provided many services. I don't know if he ever hooked anybody up. With but a girlfriend. he was definitely a source for us for all sorts of hardcore. We lucked out and got to hear so much stuff. And he wasn't the world's worst driver. Months or years before it came out, Ron. You just gotta let that go. Oh no, the world's worst driver thing. Um, <laughs> you know what? I'm actually gonna bring it up with him. Yeah, that's. A, I want to. I want to hear <laughs> what his take on that is, but. One of the very first things that Ron, I mean, he really was my first Seattle friend. And one of the very first things that he did that I always was impressed with was, you know, I was this kid in Bellingham and he reached out to me and said, hey, you know, we're not going to make it to the last Youth of Today show in L.A. at Fenders. But I think everybody is able or the people that I know that are going to go are are able to do the Gilman show in Berkeley the next night. Um, so it's not going to be Youth of the Day, but it's going to be like Judge and Bold and some other bands. Um, and we've got room in the car. If you can get the time off and want to go, you're invited. And I got the time off of work and somehow convinced oh, you my made mom that stuff. and my you grandma. You made that stuff happen. When it, yeah. And yeah, somehow I convinced my mom to let me like take off with some guy from Seattle that she'd never known. Um, and yeah, we went down to the Bay Area and went to that show and it was amazing. And it was like we drove straight there and straight back. Gilman Street. Yeah. That's ah, a pretty big deal. Ron so, was good I mean, for so much. Man. Yeah, there was so many doors that Ron opened and so many people that Ron introduced us to. There were so many bands that we got to hear that, you know, I mean. But now, see, now, going back to that Brian Van Cleek point that I made earlier, though, from his point of view, though, you were the guy that was connecting these people and then bringing those connections to your group of friends. So, yeah, I reached you, out to Charlie um, because I think he was the point of contact for Bloodlet. Right. Um, and... Both Ron and myself were interested in putting stuff out for Bloodlet, but Ron was like, well, we could share. You know, you could. I don't mind if you do a 7-inch or whatever. Um, so I had talked to Charlie about that, and we had kind of started a little bit of a friendship and a little bit of a correspondence thing through that. Um, and it culminated with Bloodlet, when they came out on tour, um, asking Slowside Down to play a couple shows with them. And we actually even had a challenge. Yes, the challenge at the Hurricane. We had a Hurricane Cafe... Uh, hash brown challenge between bloodlet and slow side down and and bloodlet thought the, they could the cheat. challenge was the challenge was you could get all you can eat hash browns. hash browns at the hurricane everyone had to order all you can eat hash browns and then it was keep track of how many plates the bands yes and it was band versus band, band versus band how many plates and bloodlet thought they could cheat by getting stoned and have an advantage <laughs> so they tried to game us and they lost because we had some serious champion eaters. In oh, the and it, it, it wasn't even close, if I remember. Uh, it was it pretty was, crushing, wasn't it? It was like six plates, I think, was the difference between the two bands. Yeah. You, oh, it and was, it was, that was largely like, I think, myself and Josh. No, nobody n- nobody was terribly happy after that night, other than that we had a, a story. Right. And all, I, we I, was, I was only there as a, an, an advisor. I was in an advisory position. <laughs> And then we had, we had we somehow had the ability to get up the next day and like suffer through the van ride to Victoria, BC, because we played a show together uh, in Victoria, I believe, nice. the very next day. Nice. Okay. Uh, believe it or not, you and I are coming up on two hours. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> it's, it's, I told you it was going to go fast once it started going. We're not even in the 90s, hardly. Um, we're in the 90s. We're, oh, 96 was slow side down. Okay. But see, that actually, I'm going to say that we can cut. Five years out, maybe. Like, what, what What? goes on then? I know you get married. So, yeah, I, Slow Side Down happens. We go on tour. Mm-hmm. 
um, which was a big deal. I mean, that's yeah. musically, that's probably the biggest accomplishment I think that I can say that I, I have is we, we went out, we did a month long U.S. tour. That was really, I guess, more like three weeks. But we did it um, and, and went out there and somehow managed to not kill each other along the way. Right. Um, you know, I mean, it was a big deal for Eric because he met his wife, Felisa, that way. Um, and I don't know. I think we all got to sort of like live a little bit of the dream. We played some places that we probably shouldn't have been fortunate enough to play. We did a show with a veil. Nice. Um, there in Richmond. We did a show in Oakland with... Uh, evergreen and nice good time too yeah yeah it was a good time for evergreen we played uh a show with i don't know it's 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 it's, it escapes me now and i'm realizing that some of this is possibly also jayhawker memories evergreen seems more jayhawker well time frame you know i think evergreen that could be wrong no because there was evergreen and mohinder and you know what you're right i think those were all jayhawker sorry like in retrospect, those are. Those I were, know you did tours. Of those both. were those were shows, and then we Mohinder made we made enough of an impression on them that they asked for us to come and play when they played up in Olympia. Nice, and that was really cool. So I think um, after Slow Side Down, you kind of settled into more of a. You, you ended up moving back to Bellingham from from Portland. You a, did live in Portland for a while. I met a girl in Portland. I. Got a job working in a movie theater. A haunted movie theater. Yeah, a haunted as hell movie theater. <laughs> um, that's another story altogether. That's for your ghost story podcast. That's fine. Maybe that'll happen one day. Um, but yeah, I met a girl. Um, we got robbed at gunpoint in a movie theater. And they thought you did it. They You got robbed and they actually thought you pulled they it. They only thought we were possibly pulling something on them for a very short amount of time because then within a matter of days or weeks... There were two other similar robberies that ha- that had too much other things in common. Right. Um, and I know from like the last time that um, we went out to lunch with the person who was tasked with investigating the whole thing that we were free to go and do whatever we wanted. We weren't under um, any suspicion, or we weren't a- we weren't people of interest. You anymore. told me shortly after that that the worst part of it was when you could feel the gun barrel in your yes. back. And that has always left an impression because when you told me that, it made me imagine what the gun barrel felt like. Like it wasn't real at that point until that, but I remember exactly what that fucking thing felt like. And I think that wasn't even the worst part of it. The worst part of it was being on the floor next to someone that I had pretty strong feelings for already at that point and not knowing what I could do for her to not have to be in that situation and trying to do everything that I could to keep that situation from getting any worse. Right. And luckily the person left. Right. This right. wasn't some No, no, killer. no. It was very textbook in terms of the instructions are you, you give them what they're asking for and they go away. And this guy played by the rules and that's good. Got away. But yeah, it was pretty scary. So right after that, you moved. Yeah, that was about it. That was kind of the final straw on Portland. Um, so Bellingham is once again, this like little cradle that you fall back into where you, you can be content to basically do nothing for as long as you want. And it's okay. That town is basically like you have permission to let all of your dreams kind of sit on wait, sit and hold. Which is, I think is ironic you, because you moved from Portland to there. Right. Where you kind of <laughs> die slowly. Right. In Bellingham. Rather than you're not, you're not circling the drain quite as much as 
you are in Portland thinking you're getting somewhere. Sorry, a little bit I, of Portland trash talking. And maybe now seeing kind of what Portland has become, I'm kind of glad. I feel like I dodged a bullet by getting out of Portland when I did. Well, you, I feel like you gleaned everything there was to glean out of it. Right. I learned the lesson that Portland had to teach me, and that was it. Awesome. So we're, I know what we can do here is we'll just jump ahead. You're in Bellingham. Right. You get a halfway decent job. You're living there. An amount of time goes by. You make some friends. Things change. You end up in Seattle on my doorstep, basically. Adam's doorstep. More, but... Adam's doorstep, but like it seems like you guys, we were all together again. Right. So I managed to find out I was getting divorced basically at the same time that Adam managed to find out that he was no longer in a relationship. It was Memorial Day 2002. Okay. And I was like, I was a, I was a fucking wreck. Now, I, thought, I like, hate, I hate that this happened to you and that this upset you. I mean, given where you're at in your life now, I think this is just, this sure, is Sure, no, happened. no, I was, I was distraught, you know, I didn't know what was going on. I called Adam and it was in the middle of the night and I said, hey man, uh, you know, my, my marriage just fell apart. I think I'm going a little crazy here and I need to, I need to not be here anymore. And Adam was just as cool as could be about it. He was like, no problem, man. I'll be there in the morning with my truck. We'll load your stuff up and you can come fucking live with me. Right. And so the fir- I basically learned about this when you and Adam showed up. Yes. Like, boom. But there, there they are. So, and Adam's and, helping me. We're loading up the truck. Yeah. We got all this stuff in there. We're on the way back to Bellingham. And he says, oh yeah, you know, uh, me and my girlfriend, we broke up last night. So she's moving away, um, which is part of why. It's kind of a fortuitous that your situation happened the way that it did because there's totally room for you. There's a place for you to. There's a place for you. We've got a lease. And that was a a rough transition. Right. Plus, you guys are both post breakup and that's a hard time. We're both post breakup and we're both huge emo pussies. (laughs) So, you get, after a, a period of time, you get immersed back into what was. I mean, your timing was great. Good job on your divorce timing because what it did do. I mean, we're just gonna we're not getting into that in the podcast. Well, I got no to time. jump into the tail end of the paradox shows, which were incredible and inspiring. It was a great time and, in Seattle for hardcore. And I would say that I had been a friend of hardcore and a friend of straight edge and all of that stuff all through my marriage, but it wasn't a priority for me. I would get out to one or two yeah, shows a year. Remember, if you remember, every once in a while it'd be your birthday or something, I'd bring you records. And you'd show up with records and it was the way it, that I got to keep in touch kind of with what was going on. You played like American Nightmare but for But you me. had done that for me in the past. There was one time you showed up from a Seattle trip when I was working at Alpha Tech before I moved to Seattle and you had a bunch of uh, uh, New Age records like oh, yeah. Resurrection and, and Drift Again and stuff like that. I mean, there's always a point where you, you we had to keep each other kind of, you know, just keep the right. pulse going a little bit. They'll keep the, the embers there, even if you're not really hot in it at the moment. And it wasn't that I didn't care about it. It was just that there was nothing going on in Bellingham. Yeah. There were no hardcore bands really or much of anything. Well, you there were straight was... up working and living in a home with your wife. I mean, yes. and you were I mean, you were doing adult shit. Kind of. I mean, we were still just playing video games and yeah, I know. being idiots, but... <laughs> Doing a little electronic music. Uh, a little bit. I was acquiring the gear to play electronic music because one of the things that I probably should mention is that uh, I'm a giant skinny puppy nerd. You Yes, we went to skinny puppy in high school. Like That's 1988. entirely your fault. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Also, The Cure. You hated The Cure I hated until I turned you. all of that stuff when you played it in Aggression Skates. And then it eventually was played in Aggression <laughs> we Skates. We didn't even talk about Aggression Skates. So much that 
it became a thing that I suddenly liked. And I would put it on aggression like when it was my turn to put on music. Aggression Skates was a small skateboard store that I owned in Bellingham, Washington from 1987 to 1989. Yeah, I really up, fucked up the chronology on I, this one. I opened it up when I was 16 with, our, with my friend Randy Clark. Bill was a, a, a constant, one of the cast of characters that was in and out of that place all the time. And yeah, we played all kinds of stuff. And we played a lot of New Order, we played a lot of Cure. Um, but, uh, you, I remember, I remember I was so proud the day I was at your house out in Linden and you told me that you had decided that you liked the cure. Oh yeah. And you know, uh, and then it was, but it was skinny puppy all the time. It was always skinny puppy. Um, and they were always the band and I always wanted to do something like that, something scary and noisy and chaotic. Um, and I mean, we'd talked for years about trigger monkey. Trigger. Well, well, Hey, you're not dead yet. No, but I mean, it's like, (laughs) it is this fictitious band yeah we're in a band called trigger monkey that we have been since uh, i believe we've been in trigger monkey since like 1991 does that mean we're also still in fright manger no that's this is a trigger monkey featuring members of fright manger no <laughs> no that's not a real thing because fright manger was the uh band that did punk rock versions of night ranger songs yeah yes and i feel like we've talked about that Almost as much as we've talked about Trigger Monkey. So by but your logic, if I'm in Trigger Monkey, then I'm also in Fright Manger. No, 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 no. Because cause that was that was more of a joke. Whereas in my mind, because Brian's in Trigger Monkey too. And the fact that one day we hooked up a bunch of that crazy shit Brian used to hook up with pedals and guitars. And we recorded some stuff on a boombox. So yes. there was something. Oh, there was a Trigger Monkey practice. That was, yes. A tr- so that's why that's real. Okay. But that's the thing though. Like you did one more band. You did Pistols at Dusk. I did Pistols at Dusk with uh, Eagle and Manfredo and... Josh uh, and Wes. So Wes, um, and Wes definitely was pretty much the principal songwriter for that band. Wes and Eagle really uh, had the sauce that made that band just tick. So this is the this is your returned, and now it's it's not too far and different that, that from was like, you. say... You hooked, up, you hooked up the Eagle and Me thing, because we both kind of looked at each other very apprehensively. Because he was one guard of hardcore and I was another, and there was a lot of mistrust about, well, what's your motive? But you know what? It was pretty cool to see you come back swinging. Like, right, right out of the gate, Pistols of Dust was cool. Oh, man, and I love that stuff. I'm so proud of those songs. It's, 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 it's I, quite good. I wish there had been more, and I wish there had been an opportunity for more. Um, but I will, I will definitely say that, like, we left it all out on the field with that. Yeah, yeah, I think you did. Like we definitely as as great as it would have been to have done more songs and play more shows and stuff, like the the couple of shows we played and the couple of songs that we wrote, I just I'm stoked. I'm stoked that I can look back and say that I was a part of that. All right. As I'm looking at the time, almost reaching the two the There's two hour line. So much of this you're gonna be able to edit out. No. What's the point? Smiles just put it on and listen to it. Okay, so <laughs> here's the thing. You will do more music at some point. I hope so. I'd like to think so. No. Listen. Listen to me, what I'm saying to you. You will do more music at some point. Just say yes. Yeah. Yes. Wasn't this, that wasn't committal enough. Okay, yes, I, I will. I have a recording of a song from my, my friend Brett up in Washougal. And That's down, by the way. Down in Over in Washougal. Not even. There. In Washougal, does that work? Are they south of us? So south is there. It's down. Okay, down in Washougal. 
Um, I have a recording <laughs> of a song that I am terribly, terribly overdue in coming up with lyrics for. Uh, and hopefully there will be more songs like that. Brett was in what I consider to be a very, very overlooked part of uh, Northwest hardcore history. Um, and that he was in a melodic kind of pop punk hardcore band called Hutch. Yeah, Hutch is awesome. That were a fucking phenomenon. And there's an unlisted track, secret track on the Hutch CD that There is, is a your secret vocals. track on there that I did backup vocals on. Called Honduras. Brett, called Honduras. Which is awesome. <laughs> and uh, the song that Brett recorded and uh, sent to me is very much in the same sort of vein as that. And I would love to do something like that. And I can't think of a better person to do it with. So, you know, there may very well be fruit from that at some point in the future. I definitely expect to hear. At no point do I expect it to be over until we're just gone. No, there probably won't be any more electronic music because, uh, I don't know, man, that shit's just expensive and I buy gear and then it doesn't get used and then I feel guilty about it and I sell it. And it's just a, a bad cycle that I'm trying to break myself of. Well, I remember when you did the three songs that were the brown sound. Yes. Songs. And I took those to work at the time I was working with Derek Lineman. Derek Lineman's in Logic Probe. And he's an ornery bastard who I love dearly. Um, and uh, and I don't think he'd care that I said that. Right. And I played it for him. And he was absolutely shocked how good he thought it was. Huh. And he listened to all that IDM stuff. I mean, that was his, that's his thing. And I remember him thinking that you really had an ear for it. Like, you really knew what you were doing. And then it. They just stopped. And, and honestly, like, that's not really my speed, that kind of music, but I think it's cool. Anything that you create and put out as a product of, of art, of, of an expression, I'm going to get behind. That was, I didn't really dig that music, but I dug what you did with that. You and know, was, we never even talked about the Briar stuff. I feel on. bad that we didn't talk about the Briar stuff because the Briar stuff supersedes even some of the, like, things that I talked about, like the first step thing, um, doing Break Down the Walls. I'm relatively certain that I had recorded at least one of those songs with Briar out in the his room there in Linden prior to that. Right, and we and were in a band for a Mike, brief time. I played bass, didn't Mike know how to play bass. Mike no, you're right. played That's, drums, right? That was much later, though. Was it? Yes. Because um, that was a different song altogether. There was a weird kind of yeah. cure-ish song that Briar wrote. And gave me the lyrics to, and I jumped into a cupboard in his fucking room with a microphone and belted it out in this weird kind of pseudo-gothic so style. listen to me. Briar's making all kinds of music. You, I mean, yes. there's no... And he's like, he's one of the originators for you. There's, that's what I'm saying. I guess it's, it's... There's no reason why we won't have more. And there won't no, be... No. An, we've told a whole bunch of chapters in a story, but if we're reading the book, we're not at the last page. We don't have to be at the last page. No, and I feel like we just dropped the book and it flopped back open to another page just briefly. He flipped back and showed me that I missed an important like, paragraph. Did I fucking fall asleep during this page? Look, man, I guarantee you there's more we didn't talk about than we did talk about today. But we, you, you know, and Cliff Notes And version. I honestly, the other person I could see having some sort of a musical uh, connection with again in the future is definitely Briar. Because I feel like we've been promising each other that for a long time. I love it. And... It's just this like never ending series of misconnections and sooner or later we're going to fuck up and be in the same place at the same time. And it's just going to happen. I like it. Um, and I'll be very hopeful to, uh, to hear it. I, I will not have a record label to release it, but you know, <laughs> we have the internet the internet is our record. It's label. a whole new, it's a whole new world. So 
I, I, I really appreciate you coming out here and doing this. Um, and, uh, I'm basically going to bring this thing to an end now. And what would you like to say? What would you like to leave this conversation? Is there anything that's made you feel or anything you feel that's been left out that's important or just some summation you'd like to make on it? No, I mean, you're the longest standing friendship I've ever had in my life. I, uh, I'm just grateful. Like there isn't much that I have or, uh, can attribute to like who I am in my life that I don't feel is not in some way a byproduct of our friendship. Well, I, I appreciate that. I mean, and I, I obviously like that, that's a straight up two way yeah. situation. I mean, I, yeah, who knows? Who knows what would have happened? You know, life might've been better. I doubt it. <laughs> so dude, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for having me. You bet, man. Well, there it is. Almost two hours in conversation with Bill Baker. If you've come along this far, thank you. I hope maybe you're beginning to figure out what it is I'm doing here. Not every one of my guests is going to be very well known, but all of them have interesting stories, and I want to get to the bottom of them. And all of them play into this larger sense of community here in the Northwest. Um, And in some cases, it it will spread outside of the Northwest. Some of the people that were important to us did not live here, but would come through. Or in some cases, we were rarely more than pen pals in the days before the Internet. And some of those people play a role as well. And eventually, I will be trying to get to everyone. I have a list of literally hundreds of people. Some of those names, you're going to know just by looking at them. And some of those people, you will have never heard of. But we're going to figure out what makes everybody tick. Or at least what made everybody tick in this direction. In terms of uh, corrections for this episode, there's probably stuff we're wrong about. I mean, but I don't really know. The, the, the only thing I got that I knew was wrong in listening back, other than the stuff that Bill corrected about the, the tours between Jayhawker and Slow Side Down, because I think some of those shows got mixed up and he addressed it. But the only thing is when we were talking about the Aftermath Club and Laurel Grange and Guy's Lap playing at Laurel Grange, I said two years later. and It certainly was not that far later. It was more like a year. And that's, that's essentially it. Um, yeah. I mean, how much of it's really true? When you're in your 40s looking back at things you did in grade school, some of the fiction becomes the truth. That's just the way it is. I can tell you, honest to God, hand on my heart, the Hitler mustache story happened. It really did. It's a real thing. That's the kind of kid Bill was. And Bill was, I mean, he was a bad kid and he was an awesome kid. Um, throughout my life, I read Calvin and Hobbes and I think, man, that kid in real life, Calvin, the real life version, that's kind of like Bill Baker. Anyway, I've got more people coming up, more episodes coming up. I appreciate you listening. Uh, Stay in. There's going to be some great stuff. I've already got some good interviews lined up, and I'm just going to keep going on this. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a product of the Nobody's Knows Podcast Network. Executive producers David R. Larson and K. Drake Streetman. Music for this episode provided by Polymorph from the record Artifacts, Demos, and Debris.